Folks, thank you for listening. We finally made it to episode 40. It's a milestone. It's a big one. Not only is it a big episode, but it's with a big name. And it's probably the biggest name we've had on the show so far. James Desborough, a.k.a. Grim, sometimes called Grim Jim, who runs Postmortem Studios and has published in the industry for decades, is extremely prolific in his catalog of what he's all produced. And really, his whole career has been in the mainstream, but sort of on the margins of where the culture is, in the funny and in the absurd, in the very adult, and sort of just exploring the limits of what can be done as far as the culture and concepts of role-playing. And so I just wanted to hear everything about his career and the ups and downs, whether it's actually cool to be in the industry or better to be an indie independent guy, what kind of business model makes sense nowadays, and really get as much perspective as possible. Um, the thing that actually made me really excited to talk with him is because he's going to be starting up a series, a video series on RPG design. And you can subscribe to his subscribe star and get access to the series and give him feedback, ask him questions, and he'll be available. He does consulting on role-playing games for companies that want help and want to hone their product to something that's marketable and appealing. And that's interesting coming from such a controversial figure who has managed to still be successful. And to be honest, there's some sort of irony here because his latest game is available and has been getting sold, but not through drive through RPG, where he has tons of his other stuff because they considered it to be too explicit and too controversial to have on their platform. Even though they have an adult section, they have a rated R sort of label you can put on your games, we talk about why this game was considered to be too far and the reality of the politics around game design. And obviously he's willing to go the distance with whatever concept he's trying to explore. It doesn't just want to have the whole industry and the whole hobby stay within this small circle of, of safe concepts. So for me, this is a very valuable discussion in terms of the history, where the counterculture, subversive nature of things came from, how it looked from within the industry at that time, including the crash of the industry and, and things that I just had known about, but I didn't really have a good handle on the perspective from within the industry and right up close involved in it. I think you're going to love this episode. Go ahead and subscribe on Patreon, patreon.com slash Pullman, if you want to support it financially. Otherwise, just share it and promote it because it's all about these creators and shining a light on their insight, their experience, what they're trying to accomplish. And I'd love to be able to help people do that. And so it's my pleasure to have Grim on. Please listen and enjoy. Okay, everybody, we're back with another podcast. This time I met somebody pretty special, very prolific game designer, and got his own YouTube channel, pretty well known. Grim Jim, I believe, is what you prefer to be called, right? 
Yeah, or just just grim. It's fun. Um, so yeah, I met you on Minds, which uh, I haven't been on for very long, but I've been I've been enjoying meeting people there, and. I didn't. All I knew was your YouTube updates that you did, and I didn't realize <laughs> that you had this gigantic history of a catalog of work that you were that you have behind you. And uh, as soon as I saw that you were interested in, you know, doing a series on YouTube of game design, um, like specifically videos on RPG design, um, I definitely lit up. I was. I'm, I wish many more people who have experience would do something like that and part of the podcast is to try to talk to people who have insight and get them to talk through their process and what they've learned. And so I'm super excited to be able to talk about what you know about RPG design that some other people wouldn't because we've had a very amateur people on. We've had some people who are pretty experienced and have sold stuff pretty well, but um, you know, you, you've got such a history yeah, good and bad. <laughs> I don't know about famous. No, notorious, I think, is the uh, mm. is is the is the right word. I make a yeah. distinction. <laughs> yeah, I I don't know what you consider to be your your most popular work. Is there one that just sort of stands out head and shoulders above the rest? I feel like that's how it usually goes, right? I mean, um, it, it kind of depends how you angle that question. Really, I mean, I had. I had massive success right out of the gate with uh, the Munchkin's Guide to Power Gaming. That was that was huge at the time, and of course, it spawned the the Munchkin D20 supplements, and then eventually the Munchkin card game, which unfortunately I don't see a single red cent from. <laughs> say, so that's, that's huge. Yeah, le- lesson one in game design, kids: don't sign contracts <laughs> that are bad for you, uh, even if it's your first gig. Yeah, I'm, I'm still getting residuals on, on that. Of course, it wasn't just me that wrote that. I wrote it with my writing partner at the time, uh, Steve Mortimer. He took a different path into kind of software and, uh, web applications and things. Uh, but we, we still meet every month and a half or so, uh, for gaming. Wow. So yeah, my, my professional career started with that. I mean, that was written in 99 released in 2000 and then we won the origins award for that in i think 2001 i'm not entirely certain so in a, in a lot of ways i feel like maybe i shot my bolt on, <laughs> on the very first thing we put out so i'd done some sort of amateur stuff before then i did um a fanzine called brass stud for a, a play-by-mail game before that i'd um done some cheap and cheerful sort of fanzine type uh, expansions for cyberpunk that I sold at a couple of the old UK games fairs and gen cons that would have been 92 93 94 sort sort of time uh and I I yeah and I did run my own little little fanzine called hardware for a while it's just just a kind of I had access to a photocopier <laughs> basically so I drew little cartoons and wrote articles and all kinds of all kinds of stuff, and had a devoted fan base of about twenty five people at my school at the time. <laughs> so, yeah, I've been doing stuff for for a long time. Uh, that's that's so enviable. I mean, that's that's the fantasy. I mean, of so many people who I I've talked to that would love to get started and recognized and have a little just that small following can do so much for you. Um, 
and then just build on it and have have somebody you know people that you can go back to get feedback from and that are fans of yours but also probably are going to you know be pretty honest about your work if they don't like it and um would you say that that getting that early start kind of give you access to all sorts of things that have helped you since then and you're not you don't ever feel like you're starting from square one or how does that feeling go over time? yeah it was it was a bit straitjacketing at the at the time because oh, really? yeah the the munchkin's guide to power gaming was was comedy um and so that's all anyone wanted to employ me for i did some stuff for mongoose publishing that mm. was all sort of comedy supplements and i began to get very very frustrated with that. I mean, I still had a, had a regular full-time job at the time. So I was fitting this in and in and around everything else, just sort of freelancing. Um, but all they wanted was, was comedy books and it was getting very frustrating. And I think that came through in some of the books because on the surface they were comedy, but underneath that I was trying to make some serious points and they ended up being a bit confused and I still get shit <laughs> over them to this day because of that. So like in these, in, in the, is that already doing the fanzine kind of stuff or is it a more, is it in the more official things where you're, um, you're, you're starting to stray into, you know, trying to make serious discussion about, and what, what kind of stuff are you discussing? Like how people should behave at the table or is it just cultural stuff around the RPG hobby or? Uh yeah, kind of. I mean, do you, do you know much about Mongoose Publishing? I know. I've never. I don't even think I've ever heard of it. Uh, they had the Babylon Five rights for a while. Um, they had the Starship Troopers rights for a while. They had a fairly successful miniatures game with that. Um, they did a lot of sort of third edition sort of churn material, like big books of feats and stuff like that. And they had this series called the the Slayer's Guide, um, which was mostly serious but then the things they employed me to write were were more comedy mm-hmm. so um slayer's guide to rules lawyers which was kind of like a a tighter more specialized version of, of munchkin's guide to power gaming in a, oh, in a lot of ways so that's yeah. the pattern that started to to unfold yeah and then i did the slayer's guide to female gamers which at the time was fine apart from uh some American distributors thought it was actually a guide on how to kill women, which it obviously wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. That was kind of my, well, one of my early sort of what the fucks <laughs> about the way people react to things. Um, but at the time it went over well because the butt of the joke was not women or women in gaming. The butt of the joke was hapless dudes. Mm-hmm. Who, you know, you know, over, overreact if a, if a girl turns up at a, a hobby store or whatever. And of course, yeah, I can totally yeah, see the, it in my mind that how that would be a hilarious book and then how quickly I mean, I it would be misunderstood. Yeah. I mean, I don't think that's the, that's the case anymore. You know, we've kind of got some, some mainstream appeal and it's not seen as being quite so, quite so dorky anymore. But this was, you know, early 2000s. We still had that kind of stigma culture. And yeah. I always felt that making fun of it takes takes the sting out of it. And at the time, it was fine, but I still get people to this day <laughs> giving me shit over it uh, because they think the target was was women and not men. So I I don't know what to tell those people. Um, and then it kind of crossed over into more sort of a, a sex comedy area, 
There was, um, uh, oh, what was it called? Quintessential Temptress, because they had uh, a series of quintessential books like Quintessential Rogue, Quintessential Fighter. These are kind of specialized supplementary books. And this is in early 2000s already? Uh, yeah, early, early to mid 2000s, I think. Um, I'm not too good at keeping track of dates. But, um, yeah, that's where it started to kind of go wrong a bit for me because I was getting frustrated at the comedy. So I, I took it kind of half comedic sort of sophomoric humor approach. But behind that, I was trying to write something more serious about, um, you know, sex work in, in medieval or fantasy realms and uh, how you could center a campaign around a brothel oh, like wow. you would around an inn or something like that. And so it came out very, it came out very confused. And I don't think people understood quite where I was coming from, but that was this, just this frustration coming through. There was, there was another similar book called um, Nymphology Blue Magic, which was again intended to be a joke, but I was trying to make serious points because right. I mean, you, you, when you say you look, serious you look at, points, uh, just to clarify, like when I when I hear serious points, I'm thinking somebody's either doing real life social commentary or they're trying to make points that they want the gaming industry and other gamers to consider while they're role playing. But I'm not sure what kind of serious points you're trying to make in these. Um, I mean, I can I can remember. I've still got my brainstorming sheets from that somewhere. Um, a lot of it was just sophomoric jokes obviously, because that's what they wanted and you sure, have to yeah. write to order. But if you look at the real world, right, and you look how the pornography industry has really driven technology, you know, streaming, sure. online video, transactions, all of that, I was kind of thinking, okay, so we've got magic rather than technology in these fantasy worlds, but people are still people. How are they going to use and abuse and exploit magic in relation to human or in this case demi-human i suppose sexuality so i was trying to make that kind of point about it Interesting. and i was also trying to make um sexuality in 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 gaming and in fiction it's it's a big thing for me because i always think it's weird that people have no problem with violence but everyone shies away from from sexuality and it seems so weird to me because that is such a huge driver of human behavior. I mean, you don't have to role play everything out explicitly or, or whatever, but, but just romance and sexuality and attraction drive so much of what we do day to day. It's, it's peculiar in its absence. Now, do you think it's strange in that, in that more people aren't at least acknowledging it in what they do? Or do you think that it would be like, totally normal and should be expected that everybody has some sexuality in, you know, in just the every ordinary, you know, RPG somebody's making. Uh, or do you advocate that everybody put some in it or just that you wish the industry itself would just loosen up about it and take it seriously in a different way? A, a bit of both. I mean, some of it's a holdover from the early days of D&D. I mean, if I, I did a video about this recently, there was the uh, supplement, the Palace of the Silver Princess, which had some not exactly overt, but um, certainly there are sort of suggestive BDSM elements and things that clearly the author was was working through in their work. And after that point, because this was at the time of the Satanic Panic as well, there was a lot of 
internal sort of hand-wringing and so on at TSR, and then they decided to take the more family-friendly route. So, you know, they removed the demons and devils from, was it the Fiend Folio or the Monster Manual? One or the other, I never remember. Just they removed those elements. They got rid of any suggestion of of nipples or anything. Mm. But if you go back to the supplements that are kind of contemporary or before Palace of the Silver Princess, there are a lot more suggestive elements. There are a lot more pieces of more, more suggestive artwork and there's encounters like, you know, dryads or nymphs or whatever trying to lure you to your doom, that's that sort of thing. And then after that, not so much. Yeah, it's, um, it's so fascinating because um I grew up, you know, I was just a you know, a young young man in the in the nineties. I wasn't uh wasn't a full grown adult. So to me, there was sort of a a weird mix of uh, like metal, arcades, role-playing, comic books, and like, you know, the back room of a, of a video shop. There was like, there was a couple of scenes that were, that were like really taboo still in like a very legitimate way. Um, because before the internet, you know, people didn't have such a wide breadth of knowledge at such a young age of what was all, out there and mm. it was sort of this mystique around all those different things and you'd see people who were you know role playing and they would you know the satanic panic definitely set that up as being taken more seriously even though on on its face it's it's a tabletop game and it's kind of silly and then the but the fantasy of it and the idea of of indulging fantasy to the point of actually playing it out or role-playing it, you know, then especially if you put sexuality in there, then there's a question of what's actually happening at the table when people aren't looking and are people, like, masturbating and they're just, like, getting <laughs> off on the, like, how far does any of that go? And I remember being, like, a teenager and just not wanting any part of anything, <laughs> just, just in case it was, you know, anything was true about it. But... Obviously, you're older. You were actually, you know, publishing stuff and and deeply involved in the scene. And you were saying before that that uh, you know it was awkward when women would would come to a, like a role playing game or you know show up at a table or something. How do you reconcile the the sort of culture that you are that you want in there with sort of the the taboo element where it would like, cuz i imagine that's where most of the controversy has come from since then too is is you're sort of driving people away while inviting them in by making things controversial but then saying just don't just don't take it seriously or how what's the balance yeah, there I, I think the controversy controversy tends to be helpful uh if anything you know if you if you're slightly dangerous or perceived as being slightly dangerous there's a certain pull and attraction when it comes to taboo. I mean, you're talking about the 90s, right? So that was the big kind of flowering of, of Vampire the Masquerade and mm. yeah, the more kind of adult sort of Iron, Iron Age, if, if you compare it to comics, um, of RPGs. And a big element of that was the injection of sexuality, or at least the, the suggestion of it. And that was actually hugely attractive to women. Um, particularly in the in the LARP scene, which I was heavily involved in, and, and let me tell you, the LARP scene was 
a meat market <laughs> for, for a lot of people. Um, they were there, they were there to get they were there to get laid, and uh, you know you could make an approach in character, and it would make it sort so of deniable. So my feeling was actually correct <laughs> to an extent, but you know people people liked that. Um, I don't think people would react in the same way today. I think it would get treated as harassment, even though it wasn't, and the women were quite often the initiators of what was going on. Sure. But it's just. There's, now, there's now, a, that there's a con- yeah. now that I'm an adult, I understand, I understand that dynamic and is not as, as one-sided as, uh, as the stereotypes suggest. And, and I find that very fascinating. I'm wondering is, did you have experience, like, were you just in the UK, uh, consistently? Have you lived in America and how did that, do you know of a my, big culture gap there? My partner's American. Um, I visited the states a few times, mostly related to to LARP or to or to, or to work, um, you yeah, know, in the gaming scene. So I have some some idea. Okay. Most, mostly of the convention scene in the states, um, and I do have a lot of experience playing with and um, yeah, build, building stories in the LARP society with Americans. There are certain cultural differences. Um, I think Americans tend to be more conservative on the whole, small, small C conservative, if not, if not big C conservative. Right. That's kind of what Europe, I was Europeans. Yeah. But then, yeah. So I also had experience through the LARP society and, and through conventions and so on with people from France, uh, some of the Nordic, uh, LARP people, uh, and role playing societies there, uh, all over really Germans, um, Used to know some of the people that did translations for, for White Wolf. Got together with them a couple of times. I was an early adopter of the internet, so, uh, for here. So I was on direct dial into BBSs back, back in the day. Sure. And, uh, and then of course you had news groups and everything else. So yeah, I've had a pretty, pretty broad experience of, of the role playing community on a, on a global level. But uh, you just compared, don't see that there's a lot of people. So. In your experience, then the the sexuality and the really adult themes are an attraction to you know obviously people who are who are like you know wanting to get into that specific aspect. But don't you, do you see the the polarization that happens where somebody just wanted to basically do the the standard fantasy stuff, and as soon as that gets brought up, like you must notice the the a sort of discomfort that happens even even among you know players who just weren't expecting it or is it your experience that they always know what to expect when they show up i think most of the time you're playing with a regular group and you know each other's uh limits and so on so you, you don't need to formalize consent or use any tools you just kind of you you know each other and the incidents where you're playing in public or playing with strangers and so on, then usually if you put down the, the game's genre and some broad content warnings, then that's generally enough. And if someone doesn't like it, they can always raise their hand or they can leave or whatever. Or if you've got even the slightest amount of social skills, you you can read it. But they're... <laughs> they're I like that you laughed when you said that because it, it speaks about to uh, people who... Who really don't, and that's <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's always exceptions, but 
but I I just don't believe that everybody should be punished for the uh, transgressions and uh, mis- mistakes of the few. I think the 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 cost massively outweighs the benefit when when you do that when you when you do the whole lowest common denominator thing. Oh, and I think sure. ta- ta- I think tackling adult subjects. Yeah, well, we're a mature medium now. You know, cinema was already tackling adult subjects and adult matter and creating classics within a couple of decades of the of the advent of of film, and we've been around since seventy four. Yeah, so we should be ready to tackle this stuff. And uh, I think there was a re- there was a reaction to the more artistic adult way that White Wolf wanted to be. There was a, there was a reaction to that. Mm-hmm. But what's weird to me is a lot of these indie games, the indie scene. I mean, indie just means independent, but sure. in the yeah. same way, it, in the same way it did with music, you know, it's taken on a certain meaning and, and character a lot of them do explore sexuality and so on but in a very sort of tightly controlled or tightly tightly focused way and then those are the same people complaining about sexuality in more mainstream games whether it's the the art or the adventure content or the the succubus like creature in numenera or it, it's the same people there's a there's a kind of schizophrenic quality there. And then it, equally you get some big and small C conservative people on the other side who just, you know, don't like anything, but yeah, it's even slightly uncomfortable for them, but, but for different reasons. And then you've got this commercial drive from, we only really have maybe one, maybe two, maybe, maybe three large companies in, in role playing everywhere. Yeah. But from from wizards and from the people running conventions that they very much want to drive this whole family friendly, very very sort of commercial atmosphere, well, and so to be that's more accessible still. I mean, they're still still trying to grow the pie of who will all be willing to play. Um, I think. Yeah, to me though, you accomplish that by having a having a broad church and making accommodations for different things. So if you if you're not comfortable having horror games or adult games played on the general floor, then maybe set aside an area or whatever else. I, I don't think you, I don't think you grow the audience by removing the old people, the people who built the hobby. I don't think you you grow it by oh yeah tight, tightening and tightening and excluding. I think you do it by building on and including. And unfortunately, um, inclusion has become a bit of a bit of a code word for exclusion a lot of the time. And, <laughs> was, that's, a, that's a great way of saying it. I, I was certainly, I'd certainly agree that, that, you know, uh, pushing people out is, is not what needs to happen. One of the reasons why I try to do the podcast and why I try to stay, I try to meet more game designers is because, uh, I don't think there should be any orthodoxy or a monolithic culture around, you know, the gaming around role-playing or how to make a game, how to design a game. Um, you know, if people want to kind of take a slow route and do it as more of a hobby and not not try to become a, a mainstream published person, I think that's cool. It can just be a fun thing for people to design role-playing games or it can be, you know, a very serious attempt at, at making a, a living off of it and then all the things in between of how you design your rules and, and where you start and things, which is kind of brings me to the, 
the idea of your series of what you're going to talk about there. But I do want to first, I do want to get to the, if I'm hearing you correctly, um, what you're saying is, because obviously there are people who can make games with sexuality and any themes they want in it, but what you're saying is that you want the industry, like the big boys of the industry, to stop shying away from it and to actually hire people like yourself and not sort of blacklist you uh, for wanting to explore things and support that kind of creation in a more mainstream way, right? Because obviously you can just publish your own stuff. Anybody can publish their own stuff. Yeah. Well, <laughs> even there, you you run into problems. Um, in my my latest product, I haven't been able to sell it on Drive Through RPG because of uh, the way they've changed the the rules and so on. So it's a it's a supplement for a horror game I've written called Actual Fucking Monsters. Yeah, bad name, I know. Um, but that's kind of a reaction to all the kind of shiny, fluffy, happy. Yeah, sparkly vampires and everything, and the uh, the idea of even going back further, the sort of angsty monsters. I wanted to take it back to you know these monsters. They're monsters. They do horrible things. Hmm. Um, and monsters that might inspire actual terror and, and disgust and such. Yeah, but you're playing them by default. But in the in the supplement, you can play uh, hunters if you, if you so want. But hunters are also horrible bastards because you kind of have to be you know driven by revenge and. And, and whatever else, and willing to accept collateral damage and so on. So it's I'm more picturing, like berserk in my mind. I don't know, <laughs> you know, the comic. Um, uh, it's m- more more nightbreed than interview with a vampire, right? Um, but yeah, so this supplement, uh, yeah, I I go into some of the not not in any great depth or anything. I just I just mention a few of the darker things that a monster might get up to, um, like. You know, cannibalism, rape, yeah, horrible, nasty shit, which isn't to, isn't to condone any of it because the point is that it's nasty and horrible. That's, that, that's the whole point, but they will not allow mention of these things in products that go on sale on their site anymore. So how much do you get a, a, I imagine that somebody like yourself should be able to talk directly to a representative and, and make a case. Do you even get a chance to, to say anything about your product? Uh, they didn't used to really censor anything, which was a bit of a problem because there were people using stolen artwork and that that side of things I can, I can understand censoring. And then, uh, various things that I've done have been censored there. Products that used to be on sale there have been removed for one reason or another. It's just these taboo topics, I guess. And it doesn't seem to matter in what way you approach them. Or in what way you're characterizing them, it's 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 the topic itself. It, it's taboo. It doesn't matter if you intend to explore the taboo or to show that it's a bad thing. It does. It, that none of that seems to matter. That's yeah, um, so interesting that it would be. They they can't just make a, a section that is like you know X-rated games or whatever they want. You to could. Call it. You can already tag your, your game book or whatever uh, adult content. You lose access to a whole bunch of promotional tools, and people won't be able to see it unless right, they yeah. tick a tick a box in their profile, which struck me as being more than enough. But it but it's not. This is just I I don't want to get too political because I end up getting it from both sides because I'm very very much an old old school lefty, very 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 free speech. 
Um, but yeah, it's just the atmosphere we live in. The recrimination between, between two sides makes the life of a creator. And to be fair, the life of a, a sales point like drive through very, very difficult. You can't make a right decision. Yeah. I, you know, I'm going to give my, my own take on the sexuality aspect. I just can't think of any way to make it interesting. And in, like, if I was going to d- tackle that, I don't know how I would make game game systems that would be intriguing to me i mean as a as an excuse to meet women it's it's one thing <laughs> as a as a way to partake in a scene to make points to sort of score uh you know a certain type of uh of credibility as being like a serious creator who isn't afraid of certain topics i can see all sorts of reasons for exploring the subject matter but like on the pure game design level i don't know what i wouldn't know what to do well, with it if if i can address that mm-hmm. um so there's there's the role play aspect obviously um yeah if you can create romantic or friendship attachments between characters or between characters and npcs that can be really fulfilling so I recently ran an Iron Kingdoms campaign over a, over a couple of years for my friends. And sort of behind the scenes of the whole thing, there was this spy working for one of the enemy factions. Um, and she seduced the leader of the mercenary company that my, that my players were playing. So we didn't play anything explicit. It was just over time we sort of built up this, this relationship between... Um, the captain of the mercenary company and this woman who was essentially manipulating him the whole time. Um, and then at the, at the crux of the campaign, again, at the sort of last, last couple of sessions, they figured out it was her and they confronted her and it just gave the whole scene a huge amount of emotional impact, mm. especially when some of them were, you know, right, we're going to kill her. And he was like, no. And then she pled her belly because whether it was true or not, we never really, established but you know claimed she was pregnant um and in the end just the just the way the scene ran and because there were these connections and so on and because he'd been completely selfless in helping her even when it wasn't anything to do with the with the schemes that were going on in the end i had sort of his pure love for her turn her around and turn her into an ally at the end so you know role play wise absolutely it, it, it can help structure adventures and so on mechanics wise I mean, lots of games have mechanics which describe the strength of your friendship bond or, or whatever with other people. That's true, yeah. So that can be an aspect of that. Some of, I, I'm not a fan of Powered by the Apocalypse, but that in a lot of versions of that, sex is quite integral. You get bonuses and things, so you're kind of encouraged by the mechanics to involve sex. I think in Bliss Stage, which is a kind of... Um, anime teenage mecha game sex is really important in that if i was doing a game based on i don't know sex warrior which is an old comic series from uh from toxic where they were these basically tantric super warriors who gained power by having sex you know if you did a game based on that that would be an integral mm. mechanic if they wanted to recharge their batteries or whatever so there are mechanical ways you can encourage players to explore certain things and but 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 for me i think it's it's setting and it's role play that takes primacy over over using a mechanic to do it okay that's you know that's what i was kind of suspecting and i wonder to what extent that speaks to the the osr 
old fashioned role playing mentality where, where what you want to see is, you know, the rules, you don't need a feature in order to, to do anything. You don't need a special mechanic in order to role play something out. You just, you know, just negotiate it. You just discuss it and, and figure out a way to make it work. And it's very much driven by just, it's kind of, I don't know, you can maybe help me sort out what old school Renaissance and, and that whole scene is really about because you were, you were there making <laughs> this stuff, but I can't make heads or tails of the fucking thing. All right. So basically what it means is you go back to the really early days of role playing. So like basic D and D sort of red box edition this sure. seems to be the standard for a lot of people. And then you take the road less traveled and you, you house rule it or you present it in a different way. Um, and it's also an approach to role playing on a more sort of esoteric level where the story emerges from play. So it's kind of the opposite of the story games, indie games route, which is more about collaborative storytelling and less about inhabiting a character. Mm-hmm. Um, now where it stops being OSR and it becomes something else, I, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> me and RPG pundit and Venger Satanis have arguments about this fairly regularly. Oh, okay. Um, I would tend to take the more philosophical approach that it's about how you approach the game. Um, the, the emergent quality of, of the game, of the role play. Right. So if I, um, if and, I was and, going to say I was going to make an OSR game, which, which, I've heard people tell me that parts of my game are OSR and I, I just scratch my head. I have no idea how they, how they <laughs> get to that point. I, I don't try to put myself anywhere on that spectrum of new school, old school, anything. I'm just trying to make something interesting for myself, but there's definitely certain aspects that stand out to me. Like I've thought of it as being like, a, a, like a very simplistic system with a light touch to, to just basically get out of people's way. Uh, of yeah. playing the story they want. That's kind of how I've taken it. Yeah, uh, to an extent. Um, but then you look at something like AD&D, which is like the, the natural evolution of that, and they had a rule for everything. <laughs> you know, you, you were constantly flipping through the books. So it, I don't think if you if you if you fixate on D&D, I don't think that's necessarily what you're going to get. What I find particularly fascinating is not the the rules so much in the OSR, but the way in which approach has been really important. I mean, you look at Lamentations of the Flame Princess as a, as an example. It's really just basic D&D with a couple of rules tweaks that make it a lot grittier and nastier and a kind of tacked on skill system as, a, as an afterthought. But what really sets it apart from everything else is its presentation. It's very... I mean, James Raggi, he's very uh, into his black metal and everything. So as a very horror-themed, uh, sort of Lovecraftian, uh, Cronenbergian sort of, sort of approach to things. Yeah. And what sets it apart as a game is not it's not the rules. It's it's the presentation. It's the way he suggests it should be played. It's the it's the artwork. It's the culture that he's created around his very slightly different <laughs> version. Of basic D&D rules. I find that fascinating. Yeah, me too. And I'm actually so glad that you said that because I didn't want to bring it up unless it it came up. But the just, uh, you know, a couple episodes ago, I was talking with with one of my friend uh, designers in 
we were getting into the idea that what it really even means to be playing something like Dungeons and Dragons and the fact that it really isn't a system that makes it Dungeons and Dragons. It's the feeling that you are sort of channeling um, that makes it Dungeons and Dragons. It, and, and so much of the game is about that name, Dungeons and Dragons. It's an evocative, uh, it stirs up very kind of specific th- feelings and thoughts of what you want to do together. And as long as everybody's sort of in that mind space and are r- role-playing the the Dungeons and Dragons experience, it sort of is Dungeons and Dragons. And the presentation, the, the name, the... The, the way that rules and instructions are worded all tie together. And it's sort of bizarre. And what our conclusion was that is that if you were going to design a game, you should really try to make it evocative, not clever. If you have a clever ideas for how to do a certain mechanic or something, don't bring that to the forefront as being the identity of your game because the identity is going to be what you evoke emotionally, the kind of story people feel like they should be telling as they're playing, and all of those sorts of things. I wonder what you would think about that. Yeah. Um, I mean, some of that is done via mechanics because mechanics can support or encourage certain player or games master behaviors or help evoke a certain mood. Like the my classic example is always the, the stunt mechanic in Feng Shui. Um, mm-hmm. Where, where you got bonuses for doing outlandish, stupid, descriptive martial arts moves or gunplay or, or whatever. So ideally, that really... Yeah, ideally the mechanics support whatever you're trying to yeah. present, for sure. So I, I am a system matters person, but it has to be in synergy with, with the rest of what you're presenting. And, and in um, some ways, if I feel like the more there's a disconnect between what your system is evoking and what people do the more like on a mechanical level the more you get people homebrewing you get people uh you know bending the system to match what they expected it to be um and then you get you know people making all this custom content that's a lot of what the gm's role is is to kind of interpret the system in a way that matches people's expectations right yeah and there's a there's a lot of people that won't play anything other than D&D, but you can bend the D&D rules virtually out of recognition and they'll still play it. Absolutely. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, it's just, I don't know, bizarre and frustrating as a, as a game designer. So in, when you say, I, I would love to get into the actual, like, what your approach is to system design um, and some examples maybe of, you know, a system that you were designing that, and maybe your most, most recent one would be a good example, but of, like, you had an idea for what the system was supposed to be. There's always going to have to be this sort of origin vision of it, right? And then where do you where do you put your foot down and start saying, okay, this is what is going to enforce that on a system level, and here's where I'm going to stop short and let players just, you know, uh, just in their little subculture of their table, you know, do the rest of it and not have a system feature and a rule for every little thing, like you were saying, Advanced Dungeons and Dragons tried to do. Yeah, I think, um, okay, it's a little gem of, of design philosophy behind my approach to all of this. 
And I think it's something that people who are making games for the first time should probably probably hear. But once you publish it, it's not your game anymore. You've got no control over it, what people do with it. You've just got to let it go. Mm. You're not creating a game usually. There are ex- uh, exceptions like uh, Lady Blackbird and so on. But you're, you're usually not making a game to tell a specific story you're creating it to create a space in which people can create their own stories. You can leave encouragement and so on. But if you try to take control of what some unknown person that picks up your game and tries to play it, yeah, if you're trying to take control of that, you're, you're onto it. Um, so just let, let it go. (laughs) Yeah. Get it, get it out there. You then you no longer have ownership of it really. Um, and people can do wildly unexpected things. With things that you've created um well for example we were talking earlier about the uh nymphology sort of blue magic book that i did that was you know mostly sex jokes uh with with some underlying sort of seriousness but i found out some years later that some people were running a really big really successful um online game set in a sort of magical university and was very much using the material that i'd produced there wow. which is something i, I never expected you know, and they they were having fun with it. They were taking it semi seriously, and um, that that was amazing. But it was not something that I ever expected to happen. I don't think White Wolf ever expected Vampire to become superheroes in trench coats with katanas. But for a lot mm. of people, that's that's what it became. Right. So, right. so design process uh, was the was the question you actually asked. <laughs> um, so my most recent game is actual fucking monsters. And like I say, that's the focus of that is to try and get players to play monsters, do monstrous stuff, and suffer the consequences for it. So I sat down and I rewatched uh a bunch of old horror movies that I still liked. Um lot of Clive Barker, so Hellraiser Nightbreed, Lord of Illusions, things like that. I watched some newer stuff that was kind of uh, harking back. Uh, I rewatched most of my Cronenberg catalogue. I watched The Void and a few of the other newer ones. I was just trying to kind of pick out what was what was interesting to me. What was interesting to me on a on a deeper level was the idea of non-human. And how people justify them, their things to themselves. Sorry, what? You, that, you cut out there for a bit. Non-human what? Not non-human morality. How people might just justify things to themselves. Um, how non-human morals might be different. I mean, if you took a lion and you gave it human intelligence, you know, lions quite regularly kill the offspring of the, the previous, um, pride leader, um, to establish their own genetic dominance. Sure. So if you gave them intelligence, would they have the same kind of moral injunction that we have uh, against slaughtering children? Probably not. They'd probably have some kind of of justification process or some kind of overriding instinct to do so. Um, But that struck me as being too esoteric to really make the kind of center of the game. So what I really wanted to do... I'm sorry, I was just wanted to say, I imagine yeah, a very elaborate, you know, alignment system. <laughs> oh, you know, the, the, the classic alignment system, but now there's options on there that go way beyond <laughs> awful evil into new, t- new tiers of evil, you know, something like that. 
But no, instead I decided to completely do away with any kind of um, moral system, though I did add in an option one the, with the supplement I just recently put out. So instead I, I decided to focus on, okay, what, what makes you a monster? Why would a monster do something horrible? How can I drive the players playing these monsters to have to do these horrible things right. in order to continue to play? And then what will happen when they do that? So the, the, the center of the game is that you get hungry or whatever over time. The only way to access your full abilities and to prevent that is to do something horrible. And whenever you do do something horrible, it will create consequences that then come back to bite you on the ass. So that's, that's the, the central sort of loop of the game. Makes perfect sense. It's, yeah. Yeah. Uh, system wise, I opted for using sort of paired dice. Um, so like a, a D6 and a D8, you'd roll them and add together. Uh, there's a couple of fairly deep mechanical reasons for doing that. If you roll a single dice like a D20, you tend to get a very flat probability line. Yeah. Um, which means you're as likely to get a terrible result as you are to get an amazing result. That's good for evoking sort of heroic, um, sort of high fantasy space opera type stuff where things can go, yeah, where you get, you know, really big peaks and troughs. If you want something grittier, more grounded, more realistic, then you really want a probability curve that bulges in the, in bulges in the middle where, you know, the average result is what normally happens. Uh, so if you combine two dice, that's, that's what you'll, you'll tend to get. And it doesn't particularly matter what the two dice are. That'll just move the, move the bulge around. So because I, I didn't want these to be super powered monsters and I didn't want the real swings and roundabouts and I wanted to ground it and give it a more realistic feeling, then the probability curve model is, is, is the better one there. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's one of the main things that I hear people actually, uh, from my point of view, being in different dis- design communities and stuff, it seems to be the first thing that people gravitate to nowadays. If they come in and want to design an RPG, they they first just obsess about the the curve of the dice and they get their charts out and they, you wow. know, are asking what feels what feels right. And um, there's a lot of debate around and an interesting discussion too. But um, I don't personally emphasize it that much, but um, I, I certainly agree that flat probability is probably, you know, the worst decision in in a lot of games where you want to feel like, <clears throat> you know, the if you suck at something, you should have a worse chance. You know, you and if you are great at something, you should have a better chance. And then, um, if you want a general, um, you know, just you you want it to be unlikely for anything crazy to happen, which is very reasonable in an RPG, <laughs> then. You want that nice curve like you were talking about. Do you know in, I, I don't know how much you hang around other indie, really like entry level game designers. Do you have any insight into what the trend is of people trying to design a system the way I'm describing or other ways? Uh, I've, I've done some consulting, so I, I have talked to some total noobs. Um, they, there was a trend towards the more sort of indie story mechanic stuff for a long time. That petered out. Then there was more of a trend for the OSR old school rules. Now, I, there doesn't particularly seem to be uh, a, a singular trend anywhere. I think it's 
uh, I think there's a, a big appeal for a lot of people for the kind of more kind of heroic stories at the moment. Um, I could be wrong. I don't see as much of the community as I, as I used to, but I get the feeling from the kinds of things people are asking me for advice about that the, the there's a there's a desire for the kind of high adventure, the pulpy yep. high adventure, the space opera, the the high fantasy, that sort of thing. That seems to be where people are where people are headed. I think uh, I think people feel a little bit kind of impotent in the face of the world at the moment and so the the fantasy is is providing an an escape there or a, right. or a sense of empowerment. Some great nostalgic, you know, uh, warm and uh, encouraging um <laughs> As opposed to the nightmarish uh, hell existence that you're, you're putting <laughs> forward. Yeah. Um, it's it's kind of nice because for a very long time, game designers have been really into the pulps, but the audience hasn't been there. <laughs> so, harking back to the, the, the nostalgia, you know, that's even older than a lot of us, like The Shadow or, you know, Indiana Jones was a more modern incarnation. Um yeah, that sort of thing. Wild adventure, crazy, crazy inventions, all that kind of thing. Um, and there's, there were a lot of attempts that tried and failed to get off the ground with that. Even White Wolf, when they put out Adventure, which was their kind of pulp superheroes thing, that didn't really take off. It wasn't until Spirit of the Century that we really got a, a success for that. Hmm. And weirdly, that's, that's a fate system. Weirdly, fate is all about high adventure and, and wacky hijinks and everything, but its system, uh, <laughs> it hits that curve. Um, so there's a contradiction for you. Yeah, it can be done the other way. Yeah. I, just before I forget, you, I've heard a lot about, um, people complimenting and people getting into shadows of the demon lord do you have any thoughts on on that i was wondering how that lines up with your philosophy on on the darker you know gruesome nature on, on that side of things do you do you celebrate that game i can't say i've read it let me just remind myself shadows of the demon lord sorry i've got a really loud keyboard now uh I have, I'm, I'm, I don't pretend to be an act. I'm very interested in, in RPGs and RPG, you know, designers and stuff. I don't pretend to be an expert on the history of it or where these things stack up. So, um, all I know is yeah. that I've heard a lot of indie designers saying that they were inspired by it or it, it sort of spoke to their, like, like you were saying, a lack of the really mature subject matter and having somewhat of a sense of humor about it still. And yeah, no, I, I haven't read that. I'm, I know Schwalb. Um, it's an interesting choice of artwork. It's kind of a mix of Dragon Age and Middle Earth. <laughs> no, I shall have to check that out, but I, I haven't. Oh, okay. So I, I can't really speak to that one. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I I, I assume that uh, you would you know run somewhere on, along the same circle somewhere, but uh, that's that's interesting. Okay. Um, what else? Um, what were you talking about? The, uh, oh yeah, the, we were, we were kind of talking about the OSR concept and, and the trends in design. Um, I, I w wanted to also get to, uh, a couple of specific moments in your, in your history of designing and kind of, you know, how you felt about, for example, the, doing the monster manual, working on a man monster manual for Dungeons and Dragons 3.5. To me, that sounds like, you know, for 
an RPG designer that was that you've made it. You're you're at the top now, right? You're designing monster manual stuff for Dungeons and Dragons itself. Uh, is that how it felt, or what, what was? Where would you classify it? I don't think that was the first thing I did for them. Um, I think I think the first thing I did for them was City of Stormreach, which was a tie-in between D and D Online and and tabletop D&D. Um, and I'd, <laughs> at that point, I'd heard quite a lot of about working for Wizards. So it wasn't exactly a, a, a punch the air at the end of Breakfast Club moment. <laughs> um, but, yeah, it does get your name out there. It is recognition. It is working for the the big boy company. But I had already worked for Steve Jackson Games, Mongoose Publishing, Cubicle 7, yeah, a bunch, a bunch of other people by that point. Um, it was a different experience. They, in some ways, they're much more professional about things. In others, they know they're the big boy, so they kind of they can be a bit unreasonable. Okay. Um, yeah, that makes getting, sense. Getting paid took quite a while, and I know a lot of artists have struggled to get paid. Uh, by wizards as well in the past. Uh, from what I understand, they're a lot better about it now than they than they used to be. It was, yeah, it was it was interesting. There was um, a lot more feedback, and because I mostly work for myself, I, I tend to bristle <laughs> a bit at that. So a lot of cha- changes and tweaks and so on done. So what, just, um, just throw out a random example, maybe if you remember one of like, you know, you've, you've made something, uh, you know, you design a certain monster and suddenly you get a note back saying like, what, what, what kind of thing would they even be looking at? I mean, this, this would be very valuable to know for somebody who's, I think. I, oh, I think this, this is quite a while ago now. I'll try and remember. So I think the main things I did were jewel scarabs. Um, which was basically giant beetles that consume treasure and, and lay it down on their shelves and so on. So based on a, based on a real insect, there's this breed of scarab that has these really bright, colorful, shiny metallic shells. But, um, yeah, so that was part of it. Um, and the other one was the more Japanese themed ogres. So the, you know, the ogre mages, the ogre mage has always been slightly more based on the, on the Japanese folklore version um and kind of expanding that out into different ones i think there were models made of them actually but some of those they felt that the the powers or the names were a bit too um a bit too obscure or people people wouldn't get it people wouldn't understand it it's kind of an accessibility sort of thing. thing yeah um my instinct is always not to not to dumb things down to kind of treat people as if they're intelligent and capable <laughs> of un- of understanding things uh but I'm often proven wrong so maybe that was the right call but it was a bit it was a bit aggravating i guess i was kind of low key trying to encourage people to learn a bit more about about japanese folklore and um and so on I know, and that I definitely kind of had that sense reading certain rpgs and and um you know novels it goes for everything and movies and stuff it's like they just start dropping references to things and nobody's holding your hand and you're just 
oh, I guess I have to learn something now. And I, you know, I appreciate when a story is trying to just keep it simple and, and play, you know, speak to people on the level they're already at. But there's always something special about a game that, or a, a movie or a story or whatever that, you know, video games can do that too, where you, you have to step up a little bit in order to appreciate what they're doing. As long as it doesn't get too, I don't know if I could handle like, uh, too much authenticity to the point where I, I can't pronounce half the, the names of things, but yeah, the, the needless apostrophes that end up in the middle of words, <laughs> right. things like that. You're never sure how to pronounce them, but I, I mean, I, I come at it from a good place. I want, I want to treat people like they're not idiots. Um, how attached do you I've... get to stuff like the monsters that you would design? It, it sounds like you are at this point in your, you know, career, you're, you know, doing work for the sake of, you know, doing work. It's not, it's not the childhood, you know, fantasy idea of, of being able to do this stuff. It's real work that you have to do, but is there still, you know, obviously eventually you make your own company and you're doing things on your own terms, but is it, is it something where you're trying to like live up to the legacy with the D and D that you loved growing up? And did you have like, were there any stars in your eyes sort of moment around all of that? Or, you know, cause I'm, I'm kind of imagining now because you're, you're probably the most, you're definitely <laughs> the most prolific person I've talked to of in, you know, game design wise. And, you know, I'm just imagining all the people who are thinking that they would kill to be able to do some of this stuff and, you know, in reality, maybe once you get there, it's just sort of like a job and, and it's not so. Yeah. Hard. I mean, they, they say that if you do something you love, you know, then life and there's aspects to that that are true. But they also say that if you turn something you love into a job, it's a job. <laughs> and, yeah. and there's aspects of that that, that are true. Um, I didn't actually start with D&D. I started with fighting fantasy game books and um, Middle-earth role-playing. God, that was thrown in at the deep end because that was basically a lighter version of Rollmaster. And uh, Dragon Warriors. There have been a few stars in my eyes moments. Um, Dave Morris, who wrote Dragon Warriors and a whole bunch of single-player game books, meet, meeting him and him being approving quite often of what I say and do on social media, that, that's been nice. Uh, meeting Ian Livingston has been nice, but there's also been a lot of disappointments. Um, I don't know what I was imagining about game designers, but you look at the creations that a lot of people have done and they're amazing sort of rock, rock star stuff, you know, and really deep ideas and, and so on. And then you, you meet your idol and it's just another fat schlub in cargo shorts. <laughs> You know, and that's, that's disappointing. Less so with the White Wolf guys and White Wolf were all really cool. But, um, part of the reason I kind of, um, dress as I do and why I'm outspoken, I am because I was disappointed meeting some of my, some of my heroes, um, because they did not reflect in, in person what was reflected in their, in their writing. Oh, so, so interesting. So, yeah. So for, for you, your your persona and your you know your message that you have 
it's you know it's not just a brand to help you sell shit or you know get hired or whatever you're going for it's it's, it's setting an example and sort of opening things up in a way that that you don't want to be seen as a you don't want to be a hypocrite in this in artistically as a hypocrite that you you make material that's all about this really far out interesting bold stuff but in reality you're just you know a, a pasty nerd that you know is copying <laughs> something from a book that you read or something like that yeah i i, I guess hear, hearing that back makes a bit of an asshole um for thinking that of people but that it's i it is just just disappointing on some level when you meet your hero and they're just just another schlub but the, on the other side of things it just shows what kind of secret worlds are going on inside people's heads so i wouldn't say i'm anything quite so as self-aggrandizing <laughs> as, as as the way you put it it's just i want i want to be authentic and i want to be the whole package i guess oh, okay um that's so interesting I don't because for I, myself. I just, I mean, that, that's such a different way of thinking about it than than I always think of it. Is just being, I, I'm like, I don't imagine anybody uh, who's a professional game designer being much smarter than me. Uh, somewhat, you know, the, through their determination, their work ethic, whatever. Yeah, okay, they're absolutely they can be, you know, more suited to what they do. I would never argue that, but um, yeah, I. I always just imagine people kind of being on the same page of just being, you know, eager to to make stuff and to, you know, please the audience and and, you know, put something out there that they're proud of and this or maybe that's a naive way of of imagining <laughs> all this. But you you see the same I mean I'm into stuff as well. You see the same thing there sometimes. Yeah, where the where you shouldn't meet your heroes, but then other times you meet people and they're, they're just as you, just as you wanted, just as you expected, just as you imagined them to be. Uh, I've met Warren Ellis. He is genuinely a very clever chap and he has a, a persona that he, that he puts on to an extent uh, when he, when he presents himself. Um, Grant Morrison is genuinely batshit. Um, <laughs> so he, he, he's a good dude. Uh, but then other people like Todd McFarlane is notoriously, you know, in, in comics, notoriously a total bastard. <laughs> and there are other people like that. And it can be hard sometimes to separate the work from the person. It's something I try to do, but I also try to be authentic in, in what I'm presenting, you know, and show the things that I am actually into and do things that I'm genuinely enthusiastic about doing. Right. Because I think, I think that really comes through in whether you're making music or, or writing a story or making a game. If you're enthusiastic for the content, if you're, if you're interested in the content, if it, if it fires you up, that's infectious. That, that gets other people on board. But for me, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's all about being authentic and real. And, you know, these are my genuine values and, and, and what I genuinely think. That, that is, it's very fascinating because um, now I don't suppose, and I, I seriously doubt that that being the authentic, you know, personality that people can go and hear what your thoughts are on on so many different topics. I mean, that can't have been a factor during this big backstory, this big history. That has to have been a thing that mostly developed with social media and a more public facing 
opportunity and you creating your own company and all of that, right? Like it didn't help you get a job or stay employed or whatever to have that, that authenticity, right? I mean, that's more of a branding, um, outreach, connect, connecting with community and being involved with these different, you know, LARPing communities and all these things that has to be a more recent thing, right? Uh, the roots of it go back further, I think. Um, when I left school, I went to a different college than pretty much everyone else <laughs> I'd grown up with. Um, and that was an opportunity to kind of reinvent myself and to be a more authentic me because I wasn't carrying all that, all that baggage and so on. So I really went in, in hard into the kind of goth, in, goth industrial scene and, um, yeah, it had been school uniforms up until that point. So suddenly I was able to dress how I wanted and that was, that was a big deal. Sure. Um, so, you know, we've, we've lost some of that. I think the, the idea of subcultures, but back then dressing a certain way, using particular slang, listening to particular music, wearing certain band shirts, you know, you were identifying yourself as part of a tribe. You know, this is what I'm into. Right. You know, come, come talk to me if you're into the same thing. So that happened on a more interpersonal level. Then even on the early internet, when we're talking about email lists and, um, you know, Usenet and so on. Uh, I was fanzine and and stuff like that. Yeah. So I was already, you know, well, well involved in all that and already speaking my mind uh, and, and so on there. Yeah. That's a good point. Social media has been a bit, um, blessing and curse. I mean, to an extent, everyone has to be a brand now. If you, if you're making anything, you know, you are your brand. At least self-aware about it in a way that they weren't there. Every everybody yeah. and their their you know teenage kid is is has a brand now and they're like they're trying to create their own logo and shit for like they don't even make anything but they have a logo and <laughs> yeah um so I mean I'm Gen X we kind of react badly to commercialism <laughs> <laughs> so my my authenticity is is actually in part the the way that's kind of ramped up is in part a reaction against that commercialization of everything that commodification commodification of everything i got there eventually um because there's a lot of fake authenticity and a lot of people saying what other people want to hear or showing pictures of what other people want to see there's a there's just not much real authenticity uh, yeah i mean look at the, the that's the entire game now is the is metrics and you know, put out three different things and see which one gets the most traffic and then start to yeah. learn more that way. I mean, everything is, it's, it's disgusting now how much everything is just based around, uh, number driven, you know, data metrics. And, and at the heart of it, there's, it's like, where, where do you, where are you? Where's your heart? Where's your, your creative, you know, impulse and your, you know, shitty, stubborn ideas that you refuse to let go of. Like the things that make artists interesting is like, is being unapologetic and finding people who you genuinely connect with, I I think, and then letting that develop and maybe it catches on and maybe you can have a little bit of a, a following or something as opposed to, I have no personality. I'm a blank slate. Let me go and find out from, you know, these people, what is hot and what I should be looking for and 
you know, like the next yeah. qu- quarter four, you know, what is happening and shit. It's very Yeah, shallow. I mean, it's it's a much harder path to follow, so I wouldn't recommend it to everyone. You have to be very resilient because if you do put your genuine thoughts and ideas out there, there are bound to be people that hate them. You know, if you if you want to say anything interesting, you have to be willing to, to take the blowback. But for me, it's just, well, you know, I've got to be able to live with myself, and I couldn't live with myself if I wasn't honest and authentic. So I try to be that as, as much as is humanly possible and hope that that attracts an audience. And I do have a small number of of loyal followers and probably a larger number of haters, but all in all, um, I feel okay in myself, and that's that's the important thing. But, yeah, you, you make anything uh game book comic whatever um and you're even slightly controversial or contrarian or you're you're going to get massive blowback so you need a really thick skin in in any business unless you can somehow separate your personal identity from your from your company identity i'm not saying this to put anyone off or anything it's you got to you got to be prepared I mean, it's so bizarre to hear because you know i can tell you from listening and talking cuz i i talk to a people constantly outside of the podcast. I'm just, I'm just in these communities trying to, you know, hang out with other designers and talk about stuff. And, and I just enjoy hanging out and talking about the theory and the, the, the reality of how they differ on, on design. And to, to hear somebody essentially having, you know, it's the classic, um, you just have a different set of problems. Once you're, I, I you are making a living off of doing what, so many people are just trying to even get a little bit of income doing and and to um see it from that other perspective where now you're you're dealing with you know authenticity and you know what kind of followers you want to have and managing you know not just a brand but your own sanity your own energy you know, I'm not. I'm not trying to say that you're struggling with your sanity, although your material uh, what, kind of suggests maybe you are. But um, I, actually, that's something I, I would like to bring up. Uh, I am struggling with my sanity. I have severe depression and uh, anxiety, and have had since about 2007. And yeah, it comes through in some of my work. I've done some work explicitly about mental mental health uh, issues and so on. See, that's part um, of being authentic, then, right? I mean, you you can actually put it in there if you if you want. Do you do you feel like it helps? Yeah, I, I feel like it helps me a, a great deal, and I feel that by being authentic, um, it helps other people because people feel that they can come and talk to me. And if we've got this common uh, this this thing in common, games, you know, that's that's um, that helps you feel close to someone, and it makes it easier for me to help help other people and I'm I like doing that I like being there for for people and and helping them out um it does put me in conflict I mean there's a there's a lot of talk about mental health and safety and security around games and that does impact design um because people don't want you to include certain things or they want you to put extensive warnings or whatever in your books or when you're running a session and for me from from my experience and my reading around mental health issues that's actually counterproductive so i tend to be a kind of dissenting voice when it comes to design and 
games and so on, because I think they can be massively helpful for mental health, but you have to make it possible to explore the things that you find difficult or to create situations in which other people can, can garner understanding for your problems. And if you just completely avoid the subject and never bring it up, you never, you never learn to resist it and other people never learn about it, what the, what the experience is like. So I think while people are coming at it from a very, um, wanting to do the right thing, you know, they're coming at it from a good place, but I just don't know that it's, that it's helping people. Not that my experience is going to be everybody's experience, but. Yeah, some people are coming at it from a, a good, you know, intention. Some people are, are using it as a cudgel to try to beat up and, and destroy people that they don't agree with. But the amount of, that's just such a, that's such a powerful, interesting way of looking at it. And definitely the psychology of role playing can be so profound. I love, you know, basically before I got into game design, I was getting into psychology and, and the interesting, way that it goes way beyond what video games offer um there's so much creative investment and emotional investment into characters scenes and choices you have to make and the subject matter is just right there in the middle of all of it it's woven into all of it so to have and i was listening to a a different pod game design podcast it's extremely new but one of the first episodes they were doing was on the idea of the therapeutic nature of role-playing. And they even talked to, I believe it was just a med student or something, like a, a psych student who was studying it. But, you know, somebody who knew more than the average person about it and and certainly knew a bunch of other real professionals. And she was saying how healthy it can be and how role-playing is a absolutely a real tool that psychologists themselves recommend and then there's just certain caveats about how it has to be approached, um, you know, and that I can see why that's a very real debate now with, you know, the, the, what do they call it? The, the, whatever card you put down, X card or whatever. Uh, the X card. Yeah. I, I don't think that's helpful, <laughs> which instantly puts me at odds with a lot of people, but, um, I'm a, I'm a little wary of a, a lot of this. These, this ideas that, um, oh, role playing is, is, is necessarily therapeutic or, uh, you know, has, has this big impact psychologically because that's basically making the same arguments that the religious right were back in the day during the satanic panic when they were saying, oh, these games are, are an evil influence. They can lead people astray. You know, they're, they're powerful psychological brainwashing tools or whatever. And we've had the same arguments from people saying, oh, all those games are sexist and misogynist and, and racist and they have a powerful effect and they create, you know, unconscious racism or whatever. We spent so long fighting against that <laughs> in the 80s and 90s idea right. that role-playing games were, were somehow brainwashing tools and, you know, computer games late, later on. I'm, I'm, I think we need to be very careful uh, about saying this, I think they can be helpful, but I don't think they're a, a be all and end all, or and I don't think they're they're that powerful. I think we understand that they're fiction. Um, oh, certainly, yeah. I mean, I have I have yet to encounter somebody who pushed it as far as saying that anything like that. So, so I wasn't I wasn't suggesting that, but I, as far as there's, I knew, there's always there's always going to be one or two crazy people out there. It's just yeah. That, that's that's the way it goes. But um, 
speaking of psychology, there was a study, I think in the mid to late 80s. I've never been able to find it again. I think Jonathan Tweet used to have a link to it. But it was a study into role players, and the initial results suggested that uh, people who were heavily into their role-playing games and so on had a high level of psychopathy. But then they went back and they, they re-examined the tests and so on. And what they found was actually going on was that the gamers understood that the questions that they were being asked in the papers and so on were, were hypothetical. So oh. they were reacting as if it was a game scenario but with a level of detachment and an understanding that it was fantastical that your average Joe Schmo wasn't. They were treating it as a, as a real oh, wow. scenario. And so they were reacting in a way that read as psychotic when that wasn't actually the case. So gamers are actually better, it would seem, at being able to tell the difference between reality and fantasy. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that is uh, very important to remember. And it reminds me of studies that I've seen, I believe they were just earlier this year, um, major studies, years and years of, of studies with hundreds of students on video game. It was focused on video games, but I mean, um, the whole idea that they inspired violence or they created aggression was completely debunked by these studies. The biggest studies that have ever been done, not just a couple of anecdotes and, you know, half-assed studies. And, and, uh, it was showing, I believe that they said that they reduced anxiety, reduced, uh, stress. They, you know, promoted social connections because you, especially nowadays, everyone plays multiplayer games and, yeah. you know, they made real friendships and everybody put aside the idea of aggression. It was just a team exercise. It was totally harmless. It's like a sport. There's so many positive things around it. And this study just got no traction and nobody's heard about it. Um, but I imagine it's very similar in that um, you can always find some example of somebody who's already has issues going into an experience and then basically playing out. Um, yeah, there's uh, there's some interesting. I'm I'm a, like a, a free speech and um, sexual freedom campaigner as well, amongst the many other things that I do. But um, there was a, there was an interesting study about the supposed link between pornography and rape when what we actually see is the higher the prevalence of pornography, the lower the rates of, of um, sexual assault and so on. But what they found was not that, say, BDSM pornography or whatever turned people into into rapists or, or sexual sadists or whatever, but just that those people were attracted to that pornography. So they had cause and effect backwards. Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah, it's a so free that, market, so you have people gravitate to the things that, you know, they are already interested in, and it, it, re, may, it might reinforce something that they're already interested in, but it's extremely unlikely somebody who, you know, finds it uh, traumatizing and horrific to see BDSM porn would, 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 would suddenly do a 180 when they watch a video of it. Um, yeah, and there's, there's some evidence that having a safe outlet prevent people you know do things in, in real life so there's that to consider as well it's all very complicated in a world without nuance unfortunately that's true yeah the clickbait era um yeah i man there's so much that you could say about that i haven't really gotten into that uh 
into that deeply on this podcast before on the the ramifications of it and the potential well the therapeutic side of it we've I've talked about it before but the um the debate around it I mean I I think anybody who would be listening to this is you know a potential designer themselves would understand that you're not creating a a gun when you make your RPG you're just making an RPG and it's just uh, you know a game um and a lot of millennial, a lot of even younger people, uh, I don't think take any of that stuff as seriously, although there is the divide of the harsh divide of extreme activist types. But I see mostly designers being wary at best of people politicizing role playing games and and, you know, basically wishing the industry would go back to just trying to make stuff people like instead of playing the politics game. Yeah, I think there's a misunderstanding between between two camps on this. Um, I don't particularly want to get into the specifics here, but I was quite heavily involved in, in Gamergate, and you saw the same kind of criticisms there and them not being understood. So one side hasn't been particularly articulate in describing what their problem is, and the other side hasn't made a particular effort to understand what the problem is. The problem isn't politics. The problem is propagandizing. Um, So when people say, oh, I don't want politics in my games, they're not saying they don't want political plots or themes. they don't want this, this or, or themes or whatever else. They just don't want to be beaten over the head with the with the author's politics, particularly. Um, so the example I always go to is is one from comics again. So you look at classic X Men, right? And you've got mutants; they're being outcast from society, and the whole thing is an allegory for racial tensions in the U.S. And, and later on, sort yeah, of issues around homosexuality and so on. But it's allegorical. So you've got your, your Dr. King in the, in the form of Sir Xavier. Um, you've got your Malcolm X in the, in the form of Magneto. You've got your different approaches to the, to interacting with humanity. Neither side is entirely evil, even though one side calls itself the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. <laughs> you see, you, you see people's prejudices and so on played out against the mutants, but you're seeing them as real, fully rounded human beings and heroes even. So that the prejudice seems unjust to you. So that the moral lessons are there, but it's allegorical. It's through the mutants and it might feel it might feel powerful and relevant in your life if you are a minority who is being you know someone's being racist against you now you can you can see you can that, take from that exactly yeah. but and likewise if you are racist you can see how it affects these heroes that you think are cool whereas you know if you're if you're just thinking in racist terms you're not you're not sympathizing with the the victim obviously and so it just shines a different light on it. That's the whole point of a good allegory, of a good social commentary yeah. that doesn't beat you over the head, is that it, because it removes the direct subject matter, it allows both sides to see each other more clearly, I would think. Yeah, but then when you look at 
modern Marvel comics, quite often it's very unsubtle in its politics. So they will directly talk about toxic masculinity or mansplaining yeah. or, oh my God. or reparations or, or whatever in the dialogue during a hero fight. If you had told right? me the, when the, I was a kid that that's, that's what things would have come to, <laughs> I would not have believed you at all. Yeah. I mean, it's not necessarily, not necessarily bad. It can be done in, in good ways. It can be done in bad ways. But the problem that people are having is not politics. It's, it's that it's being propagandized at them. It's being, it's direct. There's no, there's no art to it. There's no sleight of hand. There's no allegory. You know, not, nothing like that. It's not respectful um, of the reader's intelligence even. Yeah, more respectful of, of the canon and people who are really into their into their comics and their yeah. comics history and Definitely, so on. Yeah. You know, it, it costs you that core enthusiast audience, which is just not a good business decision either. Um there's a game called an RPG, dragging us back onto RPGs called uh Sigmata, I which is kind it's kind of on the nose about the rise of a sort of fascist US and your people rising up against it and you gain special abilities from this mysterious signal. And yeah, it's a bit on the nose and the guy that wrote it is, is very, very right on, but it's an enjoyable game still. Um, and the game itself still isn't in, entirely obvious in what it's trying to say. It's just trying to say, you know, bad, your rebels fighting against the authoritarian system. That's cool. You know, so that's, that's a, that's a good game. That's a good way of approaching it. I mean, anything, anything we write as designers, our own outlooks and viewpoints come out in it. You can't really avoid that, but you can try to avoid being propagandist. I've, I've always thought the, the kind of gold standard of, of art, and I do consider role playing games to be art, is that they are open to interpretation and they have, you know, themes that will resonate in different ways over different time periods. If you're only relevant to today and what is the headlines of today, that's the weakest way to include a message. If you wanted to include a message, the, the, if you go, you know, I mean, you can go to so many classics and read them and you're reading it today and you say, wow, this feels very relevant. It feels like it's talking about things that are happening today, but actually it might've been inspired by something completely different that was also happening back then, but because it just speaks about human nature and, uh, you know, the, the sort of universal themes that is what makes this art so powerful. It stays relevant in more ways over a longer period of time. And you don't have to literally be the, you know, the, the kids in 2019 to get what they're saying. Yeah. I mean, 1984 gets cited so often. It's a hackneyed stereotype now, but you know, back then he was talking about, you know, Stalin and the power of television and those kinds of forces, but it's just as relevant today, but we'd be talking about Facebook or yeah. CCTV cameras or yeah, it's something else. There's always something that you can reference to it, which is why it's become such a hackneyed reference. And and with like, which one would you rather aim for as a as a creator? You would you want to be the person who you know you say something today about what's happening today because you think you're going to lead the charge of some faction that you're that you know needs to make a difference in the upcoming election or whatever it is you're trying to prove or do tilt the scales in some way 
versus saying something a little bit more profound, subtle, and and open that, you know, people could theoretically, if we weren't so hyperbolic and, and have such <laughs> short attention span, you could actually reflect on later on and piece it, pick it apart a little bit. I mean, if you are going to put a bunch of heavy themes in there, I would certainly hope that people would want it to be a statement that would last, you know, longer than whatever the current struggle is. People do often miss stuff when you try to be subtle, though. That's that's the unfortunate side. For me, um, the closest thing I guess to a to a to a propagandist game I've done is uh, one I did about mental illness because it was about supporting charities and raising awareness and so on. So that that very much had a had a message about mental mental illness. Otherwise, it doesn't tend to be specific politics but i do react to things that 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 anger me or i try to muscularly assert rights that i think are being impinged or infringed so right to free expression so i will try and push the edges sure i can see that of what's of what's acceptable but i think that's a that's an eternal struggle (laughs) that that one the, the idea of what should or should not be censored, what is and isn't acceptable artistic expression, I don't think that's confined to any single age. Um, Was that a big part of you creating your own company is, is you know, being independent enough to just have total freedom? I imagine that's that's the reason most people would create their own company if they have a good idea that they was- can make it work. It was a combination of that and circumstance. So sort of PDFs of games were starting to take off. So suddenly it was affordable and easy to, to home produce stuff. Um, the company I was working for at the time, I lost my job because, well, the dot-com crash combined with embezzlement <laughs> by my boss at, from my department. Uh, made us look massively unprofitable so i lost my job and there was just there was just no work anywhere at that time i was either overqualified or underqualified for the few things that were around you know i even went and interviewed for for stacking shelves at supermarkets and they're like you you know you're educated why are you here you're not going to stick around clear off so there was basically nothing um and i ended up living back with my mother out of one room in in her house after other people that I was living with lost their jobs as yeah. well, so we were in a house share. So yeah, that was a, it was a horrible time. There was just no work, no work, no work, no work. This it, yeah, no matter how much you looked. And uh, after a year being out, despite trying really hard, uh, the unemployment office sent me on this pointless course where you trying to teach you skills that you already have, like how to put together a CV and operate word and mm. and I, I looked at the other people there sorry to say they were mostly drug addicts drunkards and you know not not the best people there were a couple yeah. of good people and i just thought well fuck it i'm not i'm not just hanging about anymore I'm, i've got to do something i've been getting all this freelance work but i've been getting really frustrated at the kind of work i've been offered so fuck it i'll uh i'll borrow some money from my family and and start my own company Sure did. So yeah, combination combination of things: Des- desperation, annoyance, 
desire for independence and no other choices. This, yeah, it definitely wasn't the luxury of just uh, being in a, a great spot and saying, now I'm going to make it even better by, <laughs> by <laughs> Yeah. Um, and it was, e- it was easier back then. You know, I, uh, my reputation was less tarnished. I had uh, good relationships with, with companies. Um, there was less competition. So oh, yeah, it was, yeah. It, I mean, things are so it was a good, right good time now. to start. Yeah, they are. Um, it's not as bad as it was during the height of third edition, but it's, it is hard to get noticed really? these days. Mm. Could you elaborate on that? Because to me, that's a complete mystery. I would, I would not have guessed that, that it was actually more saturated back then. So, well, the problem was everybody was doing everything for third edition, whether it was suited to third edition or not. And they were all publishing anywhere and everywhere hither and yon, any, uh, anywhere they could. Um, and this had a major negative impact on game stores. They'd, a lot of game stores had already shuttered after the, the bottom fell out of Magic the Gathering and the, the whole collectible card game craze. Okay, yeah. Um, and then the third edition, there was so much product being produced, you know, even, even printed product, that they didn't really know what to get in. They couldn't sell a sustainable number of any particular product. Not from the real sort of line leaders, no quality control whatsoever. And this was the same with, uh, with online sales. It was just endless churn of, of third edition material cheaper but more of it and then that kind of fell out that all 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 collapsed took a whole number of game stores with it again which reinforced the online market but the loss of that third edition gravy train also wiped out a whole bunch of online sellers interesting um, so it's not, from, the, it's not the same apart from those kind that have been flooding, clever about it sorry I'll, I'll yeah yeah it's not the, it's not the same kind of flooding but it's um it was more of a very real business industry side collapse and, and flooding as opposed to now the sort of just the conceptual flooding of, of. Yeah. I mean, I think consumers are a bit more canny now, uh, a bit more switched on. Well, there's um, certainly a lot of heated discussion and passionate. Dis- I'm not going to make it seem like it's, it's a conflict, but I know, you know, uh, I hung out on 4chan's tabletop gaming board plenty and different communities where you have the whole point is to try to discern what is actually you know good enough to play and you're not like you would have been in the 90s or early 2000s relying on well it's on a bookshelf in a store it must be good it must be great <laughs> you know i'll buy it uh, the hacker known as 4chan <laughs> <laughs> well, since, since you bring up 4chan uh can i talk about piracy for a second Oh, absolutely. Because because that happens all the time on 4chan. My relationship with piracy is uh, complicated. Um, early in my career, um, I, I crunched the numbers and so on. And if my stuff got pirated and spread around, it actually seemed to result in more sales because people were sort of trying before they bought sure. or becoming aware of my products because they were being shared around. Um, and that would, that was good. So I've never had a huge problem piracy. I used to include a paragraph in most of my books saying, Hey, if you pirated this and you enjoy it, cool. I'm not angry. Buy something else of mine or, or drop, drop a penny in the jar or whatever at my PayPal and, and we're all square. But <laughs> basically is, is what I said. Mm, very, very but pragmatic more, approach to it. Yeah, because it, yeah, it has been positive and it's just, you can't stop it anyway. So why bother trying? 
Um, but more lately, um, my sort of uh, enemies <laughs> within the gaming been the ones promoting the piracy and and telling people not to buy my stuff and to, to oh, pirate it instead and right. so that's a bit different that's people actively trying to sabotage you that's not people oh, pirating what you what you make because because it looks looks good and they're enthusiastic there's like a bizarre principle behind it yeah yeah it's, it's very strange um I, I do a um a charity drive every year uh, for for artists in in sort of fantasy science fiction you know genre, genre artists um, to help pay their way through through college usually raise about f- between five hundred and a thousand dollars you know so that's a lot of ramen for for somebody yeah and every year some someone actively tries to sabotage that it's it's just if there is a principle behind this this kind of stuff I I don't know what it is but I don't want to get all my pee in there yeah I. I, first of all, that's amazing, and I'm I'm very glad that you do that. Um, but on the so so going to this this piracy idea, I, I you know I was just looking at your giant drive-through RPG catalog of stuff <laughs> that is on there. Um, it hasn't all been censored yet. <laughs> There's a lot on there, and and I wonder, like from your point of view, just help somebody who's who's starting, you know, from square one and would love to have that much published. What is your mentality like in terms of even just, you know, basic pricing and, and like you have stuff on here that is really old and, you know, is not, you know, I I doubt it's going to suddenly surge back into people's awareness. Right. I mean, it's, yeah, but you know, how do you feel about like, you know, I know some people, they, they come on there, they've been developing their game for three years, you know, in their spare time. And it's the, the thing they think about all the time. And they're like, I'm just going to give it away for free because I can't, I can't, uh, bear to think that people would, you know, not buy it or play it just because it has a price tag on it and everything gets reduced to free. But I mean, you have stuff here that's how old and it's got you know still got a price tag on it i don't know how much you make sales on it but what is your mentality like when it comes to the business side of drive through rpg and your existing library um okay so there's there's a whole bunch of stuff to talk about here um if you've put work into something if you've invested time and money into something don't give it away for free people Unless it's really controversial, it really touches the pulse, right? Most people won't bother to grab something that's free because the, the, the mentality is that you get what you pay for. So you might as well get something back for it, even if you just charge $1.99, $2.99, $5.99, whatever. Um, a general good guideline, and it has been a good guideline since about 2000, is to go for selling a product for about 10 cents per page up to a hundred pages and then seriously consider whether you really want to up the price any more than 9.99. There seems to be a, a psychological break point at mm. the sort of 10, at the $10 mark. Sure. Um, and you really need to provide something worthwhile. If you go over $10, people are much less likely to kind of just, uh, spur of the moment by, buy something that's over $10. 
Um, if you're selling a hard copy of your book, then I would say your ebook version needs to be down to at least half the price. A lot of people aren't doing that. I think that's a mistake. Uh, I think it feels like a ripoff. But then a lot of people give away PDFs with their hard copy books. But that's another pricing thing to consider. If you just give away your work for free, you're not just affecting your own income. You're also affecting everybody else. You're, you're, you're driving the prices down. You know, no matter what you do, no matter what you do, you should always charge something for it. Never give your work away for free. Never do it for exposure. Setting there are exceptions. Of, setting a yeah. precedent of, of games aren't worth anything. Uh, you, they're just, you know, so disposable that you can just give them away, even if they have all this excellent work put into them. I, there are people who have Patreons and they try to have some side channel that they get income through off of supporters who may yeah. not have paid for something, but now they, they support you on your own personal thing. But I it's, totally it, agree that, that when you see a bunch of stuff for free, I mean, that's the mobile game phenomenon. Yeah. I mean, it is, it is a changing landscape. This isn't always true. I'm, I'm talking in generalities. Uh, sometimes people put out playtest documents for free that anyone can download or they create a, a system reference document if they want their system to be an open system. Um, I think Eclipse Phase put out early editions of their game for free. Um, and that worked because they'd clearly spent a lot of time and money and effort on it and made a really big sort of marketing push. And that gave them a sort of initial player base that they could then release updated editions or full editions of the main book and the supplementary material to. I don't know whether that would work again. Hmm. Yeah. So there are, there are other ways to go about it, but I'm just sort of speaking in, in terms of the general way to go about it. I was hearing just recently, uh, guys were talking about the uh, stars without numbers and apparently they had a very robust free version available. But if you wanted all of it and with artwork, I believe was the difference. I don't know what exactly the differentiator was, but I'm pretty sure they said artwork was the, one of the big differentiators. And I thought that was a, a strange way to, to monetize it is to basically say, if you want it to look better and to not just be meat and bones, um, you know, get, pay something for it. Yeah. Well, the other thing you can do is, is crowdfunding, obviously. Um, and weirdly, it's probably better to have your game at least written, uh, in some sort of before you start crowdfunding. Um, because yeah, crowdfunding can get out of hand. Life can cost. You, you might get caught out and there is, there is nothing on this earth angrier than a, Delayed Kickstarter customer. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. Hell has no fury. <laughs> Stat that monster. It is dangerous. Uh, I mean, I, I, I had a project. Um, I did the, uh, Gorean role playing game, Tales of Gore, which is uh, another controversy. Um, but I, I raised money for that on Indiegogo and that ended up getting three years behind and I'm amazed I got away with it wow. <laughs> quite frankly because i didn't get too much too much pushback um and i couldn't really tell people exactly what was going wrong um it was all written it was all finished i made the raw text available to backers that probably helped a bit 
But what happened was I had one artist who was going to illustrate the entire thing, and he was a major selling point for the for the game. Oh, okay, a, yep. Well, well known fetish artist called uh, Michael Manning uh, did the Spider Garden and Hydrophidian and a whole bunch of other stuff, uh, zero image graphic design. But his life was just basically one running disaster. The, the entire time he was supposed to be working yeah. on the project, I get, I still can't go into details, but uh, all kinds of just crazy, horrible shit was was going on in his life, um, and it just kept getting delayed and delayed and delayed. And all I could do was tell people, it's a problem with the artist. It's not his fault. I can't tell you the specifics because it's like you know personal, personal stuff. Uh, he has produced like this extra piece of art this month, so here you go. You can have a look. And I, I think just like I was saying earlier, authenticity, being honest about and upfront about what was going on, yeah. and doing my best to doing my best to, to make the situation more tolerable. That seemed to to count for a lot. Yeah, that that that's very good to, to keep in mind. Is uh, I mean, I would I've tried telling people not to do crowdfunding and Kickstarter stuff because of the pitfalls and it has completely changed from what it originally was. Um, people, the bar has been raised so high and it's like people, everything about it is, is just this machine of publicity more than, um, yeah. more than genuinely, you know, taking a chance on somebody. It's like, no, I need a guarantee. This is, I bought, I bought this product. I expect this. And, it's a nightmare. I mean, you got yeah. Originally, it was a way for creators to get the kind of financial backing they needed to create a more polished product or to create something that they might otherwise not be able to do. Now you've got big, bigger companies using it as a pre-order system, and mm -hmm. it's just yeah, it's lost its whole its whole point. I think, unfortunately, and that's had a negative impact on the smaller creators. But I'm I'm never doing one again where. Things aren't essentially complete before I before I go to crowdfund. I don't. I don't um, think I would. Yeah, I think as long as people understand that that's where things have shifted to, you know, as an indie person, you can still treat it like a pre-order thing, and I think that should still work as long as you know yeah. about shipping costs and all of the other the other. Yeah, problems. don't the 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 big problem that people run into is overpromising, yeah, and doing adding stretch goals without thinking them through. Um, and yeah, shipping costs can change abruptly. Yeah, just, just currently with fuel prices going up because of the, uh, the, the problems in, around Saudi Arabia and here with, with Brexit and, uh, Trump's tariffs as well. Yeah. It's a really volatile time for shipping but, and manufacture. And, and, you know, you might have started your Kickstarter a year and a half ago and you could not have foreseen those exact things, but, you know, that's something to keep in mind when you start something. You, yeah. You know, leave, leave yourself some leeway. Don't overpromise. Hmm. Yeah. That, that's very smart. Um, now I have to, I've, I've kind of been dying to just actually get really <laughs> deeply into the actual design philosophy side of things. Um, and because you are doing a YouTube series, albeit sparsely, it seems like, or, you know, whenever, depending on the support you get and, and this kind of stuff. But I did see you on your video saying that you wanted to do, you're interested in doing a series specifically on RPG design, right? Yeah. It's from beginning to end. And in my mind, that's that's the best news ever. I love hearing that. But I, 
I have to at least get a preview of what that means to you, an RPG from beginning to end. Is it mostly facing like business decisions, wise, pragmatic steps involved in in the how to approach the business of it? Or are you thinking the way I tend to obsessively overthink every decision in you know, mechanics, systems, playtesting, player psychology. If I if I decide to do lots of hit points versus few hit points, how does that change the way that the game feels? What kind of tone are you hoping to strike in that? Um, so yeah, it's going to be um, RPG game design from from start to finish as the series. Um, it's based on some of the consultation advice. Uh, that I have been giving people uh, privately, and it's also based on uh, a, a book I had started writing and then sort of broke off from doing several times. Um, it is to, for the time being, it's going to be a, a Patreon or Subscribe Star exclusive, mm. but you only need to throw a buck a month into into Patreon or five bucks a month into Subscribe Star if you want to get all of this stuff sort of cheap and in a more timely timely fashion. Um, and if I hit a, uh, $200 a month, then I will make that my, my focus for the next, for the next while. And then eventually the video sort of tutorials and so on. Um, and the accompanying paperwork will be made available for sale elsewhere, uh, either on drive through or postmort.com, which is my own uh, post-mort.com, which is my own, my own site. I tend to view it all holistic. Um, it's, it's all part of the same thing, especially since I'm aiming this at more sort of the first time publishers, the, the noobs. Other people will certainly get stuff from it, I think, but that, that's where I'm centering the focus. Um, cause I think those are the people that need the, the most advice. So, so I'm trying you, to give, let's go on. So when you say like holistically, I'm, I've had, you know, hours of conversations with designers on on minutia that that they think is going to determine, you know, how people perceive their whole game. Uh, certain, you know, racial abilities that their characters can have, or a you know a, a system for being able to, you know, social combat, as they call it, different things like that. The, the specific ways it's implemented, people are trying to turn it into somewhat of a science, and it's kind of just this, you know, to whatever extent it's happening on a professional, professionals are talking about this, I have no idea, but at least from the communities I've seen, there's a lot of passionate interest in the idea of can we get a sort of um, an agreement or a insight into what happens when we fiddle with these knobs and what should we do? What, how should we change our settings accordingly? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So when I say holistic, I mean that whatever background, whatever theme, whatever you're trying to have, that needs to relate to the system, but it also needs to relate to your artistic choices, your marketing choices, the language that you use. Um, so every, everything is all, part of one whole um by obsessively focusing on any one single mechanic um you may lose sight of how that can affect other things elsewhere in the whole project of, of getting a game done and out there so i 
So you're, gonna I, I guess, talking, you're gonna be talking a lot about the priorities of a designer, not an in-depth study of a million different subject matters that come up along the way. Um, I mean, I will delve into some specifics, but those are choices that a designer is going to make. I'm going to try and impart philosophy uh, behind behind games, games production, and so on. Um, so I've al- I've already shot the uh, the sort of first first section of the videos as, as well as the introduction. Um, so that's just you know okay. So you're going to create a new game. What are some things we need to think about as we get into that? So should you make a new game? Is is there a need for a new game? How can you manage your expectations? What sort of goals should you set yourself? Are you really passionate about this project? Uh, yeah, why do you, why do you want to make it? Is there a gap in the market for this? Are you addressing something that no one else has addressed or are you addressing it in a way that nobody else has addressed? Or is there something that you think you can do better than the games that are out there? Um, and I talk about some of some of the pitfalls, uh, like what we call, what we call fantasy heartbreakers. Yeah, that's where someone fantasy. just just yeah, where someone just basically takes their homebrew version of D and D and publishes it. Now that was before the OSR and the uh, reference document. That was really really a thing, but it's still something to consider because if that's all you're going to do, then there's not really point in remaking D&D, just create something supplementary for D&D to offer, offer different rules or different spins or or a setting book, something like that. There's no point reinventing the wheel if that's what what your aim is. Sure. Um, from, from what you're talking about, social mechanics, I think there is a tendency for people to get over-focused on specific mechanics and to get over focused on their on their unique selling point. Oh, this game does social mechanics in a way that's that's better, or this game does sword play in a way that's better, like the the Riddle of Steel did. Um but that's not enough to carry a whole game. You've got to have you've got to have more than that. You've got to have more than a mechanic. Yeah, that is true. I mean I I would say that there are systems that I keep coming back to Blades in the Dark as an example where I'm a big fan of the the actual system and I think they did interesting, innovative stuff in in what it was trying to accomplish. But it's so interesting that they didn't really market it around the system. It's marketed around the theme of this gritty crime drama, you know, organization that you run and and whatever. But there's... There's something interesting about basically the disconnect between luring people in with the the appeal and then they ask, you know, how do I play? And then that's when you put in all the clever stuff in the in the back end once they're already sold. Um, yeah, I mean, there are systems that become flavor of the month. I want to convert everything to that system and so on. Uh, Fate's been one in the past. Powered by the Apocalypse has been one in the past. Right. Yeah, there, there've been various systems that everyone's kind of gone gone crazy for, but that does eventually run out. And I do think you need, yeah, you need more than a system. The system can be part of the hook, but what really gets people interested is is the story that you're presenting or the story opportunity that you're presenting. So if you tell them something like, oh, uh, medieval gritty crime drama with 
you know, lots of lots of stabbing. You know, and people have an idea of what's going on. Maybe they're thinking dishonored, or maybe they're thinking of gentlemen bastards, or or I don't know, even Peaky Blinders, or or something. Maybe that's in the, that's in their head. And once you've got them interested that far, you can then say, okay, and this is how the mechanics support that in play, how they encourage that in play. Right. And yeah, so that's what I find so interesting about the, as somebody who's, who's sold your own games, you have data to, to actually back up the, you know, failures and successes that you've had. You want to, Give an example of like a big don't do this kind of thing. <laughs> um, let's see. Um, a, a lot of the big don't do this is go back to the sort of the D20 days. Um, so a lot of people were putting out games that already had established histories and very particular moods and so on, but they were putting them out under D20. Mm. And it just didn't work. With the occasional exception, the D20 Call of Cthulhu was actually reasonably okay. But a lot of games, it just doesn't work. Would that include um, D20 Modern? D20 Modern was, was never really got much traction, which I thought was a shame because I thought their approach to classes and so on in that was was innovative and interesting. Uh, there's, a, uh, well, there's a guy who we've had on here a couple times who th- swears that's the worst game ever, and <laughs> he hates it so much. He, it inspired him to make his own system. That's actually the origin of his game. So I, I don't know anything hmm. about it. I just know that he was uh, he hated it. Well, in in place of traditional classes like fights or whatever, there were classes based on your stats. So whatever stat you were particularly good at, so you could be a strong hero or a fast hero. Wise hero. I thought that was a really interesting and innovative way to go to go about it. It, it certainly had its problems, but there were there were aspects to that that uh, appealed to me in a okay. geeky way. Um, but yeah, when I was still working for Mongoose, uh, I did a D20 version of Macho Women with Guns, and D20 just really wasn't that that suited to it. But that's what they wanted it to be, so that's that's what it was. Um, was there a D20 version of Paranoia? I know it was in the offing. I don't know whether it actually ever came about, but that would have been a bad idea. Um, one of the first, the first game that I put out was a modified version of D20 because at the time, you know, being a, being a total noob to, to self-publishing, I felt that that was the only really viable commercial route to take and I needed a, a reasonable success mm. out of the gate, but it was a, a game about big fantasy mecha. And D20 just wasn't particularly suited. I, I ended up bending the system virtually out of all recognition. But I should have just broken off and done done my own system. At right. some point, I'm going to revisit that game under a, under a different rule set. And yeah, so I, I've I've made that mistake. I, um, I find that so interesting because, well, I mean, if you have more examples, I would love to hear. <laughs> I would love to hear. More examples. <laughs> um, there, there's been a success which was kind of out of comfort zone so i was interested in the old school because i like i said i, I didn't start with D. i don't have that same sort of nostalgic attachment to D's rules or D's setting or anything like that but i wanted to do something old school um just to kind of stretch my legs a bit and um and challenge myself 
So I wrote Machinations of the Space Princess, which is basically just an adapted version of, of Lamentations with an expanded skill system that people seem to appreciate and um, a system for making just about any kind of alien race that you wanted. So I, I, I simplified a lot of things. And I didn't include a setting because normally I'm a quite a setting-heavy guy. Uh, I'm interested in, in presenting that, um, presenting interesting worlds and conflicts. But I left the setting almost entirely implicit in that game. And I wasn't expecting it to be a success. It was more of like a, like just a, just a, a personal exercise, really. Um, and an excuse to pay Satine Phoenix some money to do the art. <laughs> but it did really, really well. And I've been kind of nonplussed ever since. Not really quite sure what to do with it. <laughs> but it was, it was massively successful. Hey, well, once, once you make it, it's not yours anymore, right? I mean, exactly, exactly. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. I know that, um, your advice to like ask first if there is a need for that kind of game or if there's, you know, a hole in the market and stuff. That is so the polar opposite of how I talk to new designers. Not, <laughs> not that I'm an expert. I mean, people should listen to you if they want smart, you know, financial advice about what to do. That's for sure. I'm, I'm nobody. I'm not an expert on anything, but, um, just out of the, out of the the love of design and the wanting people to, I guess I'm always worried about the person who is too hard on themselves and will quit if they don't get some encouragement and that you're allowed yeah. to make a shitty fantasy heartbreaker, get it out of your system, see why it doesn't work. And by the time you're done, you're going to have 10 more ideas that are, better like if you do it the right way i think failing at something is fine and the difference i suppose would be investing in it to the point where you think this is you know going to sell and it's whatever i don't i don't think your first game should be something you try to sell necessarily you should just try to get people to like it and see you use it as a test bed maybe um what do you think about you know the the designer who comes in with a, almost a neurotic, you know, because, <laughs> uh, you know, online people are very harsh. If you get, if you put something out there, I mean, you might be lucky and get some supportive, cool people who get what you're going for and can just give you good feedback. But uh, I can tell you from the, from the 4chan perspective, there's a lot of instant <laughs> dismissal and, and sort of crushing feedback that people are, are good designers can be dissuaded from really putting their idea out there fully. And, and like we said earlier, you know, in the social media age, the odds of you getting any attention is very low. People are being very compromising a lot of themselves in order to um, try to appeal to what is out there, what's trending and stuff. You know, I kind of come at it from the, like, go ahead and be idiosyncratic and weird and even if it doesn't succeed get started it, it'll always be in your portfolio if you want to bring it back later what do you think about that sort of approach to it a very forgiving yeah. it's it's something i'm struggling with in the in the work i'm doing for the for this series i don't want to soft soap anyone i want people to have a realistic idea of you know, what attainable goals are, what success could look like. But I, you know, I don't want to put anybody off at the, at the same time. I mean, 
99 out of 100 people won't ever try, right? So just by trying, you're already ahead of the pack. So that that's that's something important, I'd say. I'd say completing a game or a novel or a comic or whatever creative enterprise you happen to be involved in, completing that is a victory in and of itself mm -hmm. for the first time, right? It doesn't have to be successful. You will learn a huge amount just from the process and just from a personal growth perspective and a sense of accomplishment. That's That's got to be worth something. Um I would say don't don't expect to make money and don't throw a lot of money away certainly on your on your first project um because you're still in that in that learning process. And I think you have to be a little bit neurotic to even try to <laughs> to create anything like this. And your your enthusiasm your passion will will carry you a lot of the way. Um we used to say uh I went uh, I'm an art college art school dropout so it was my class, we had a, we had a saying amongst each other that it was all ten percent talent and ninety percent bullshit. Because <laughs> so long as you could sound passionate and you spin um, you know, a good story to the to the tutor, you'd get a good grade, even if your art was was shit. <laughs> and everyone else in the agreed it was shit. You know, you, you you could still get a good mark as long as you could talk a good story. And similarly, I think yeah, it's it's, it's ten percent. You know, the, the actual meat of the thing and 90% passion and, and getting people engaged and interested. And if, if you're confident and you're passionate that, that you can't put a value on that. It's just, it's just everything. Right. And, and, you know, if, if this is a beginning of a journey to become a designer that is worthy to sell things, I mean, um, I, I sort of deal with, you know, I try to talk to people and encourage people who are almost in the nascent stages, the, you know, the, the fetal stage of designing. They're not even putting anything out yet. They're basically thinking about designing a game and they're, they're scared of making a stupid decision or something. And I'm always trying to build people up to be more reckless and more authentic and more, outspoken have opinions you know don't ask everybody what you have to do you know put your foot in the on the you know put your foot down and decide what needs to be done and have disagree with people and you know have have you know sort of that big free speech we don't have to agree but we can talk to each other mentality and and to yeah. me, I see a lot of a lot of people who are fragile about the the possibility of you know getting negative feedback, or they feel like everybody around them is an expert and they're the only one who's making up shit and doesn't know what they're doing. Like, um, yeah, imposter. Well, I I still get imposter syndrome, right? And I've been doing this twenty years, thereabouts. <laughs> Right. I, I still feel out of place or like I don't know what I'm doing at, at, at some point or another. Um, and so even more so every time I, I start some new enterprise, sometimes you just have to shut that voice up and, and try. And one of the great things about e-publishing or print on demand publishing is that you can make mistakes. You, you can fuck up. You can get things entirely wrong and it's very easy to correct mistakes. You just ah. got to update the file, re-upload it. And yeah, you, you're sorted. That's a great point. 
Yeah, I think I think for sure having uh, having that at your disposal changes the the whole game. You don't have to get it right. You can listen to feedback. There's comment sections. If you're charging money, you obviously want people to be satisfied. But um, yeah, yeah. I mean, you you could even have your game on a on a wiki page. Um, you know, divided up by rules and so on. And- allow certain people to add to monsters or descriptions or locations or whatever, and then have a, have a Patreon for it. So you could have a game as a, as a living document. There's all kinds of options and different ways of going about things that have opened up. Yeah. Do you think there's like a baby step? I've, I've thought about this a lot. Do you think there's like a baby step of something that people could design that is not as ambitious as a role-playing game that has, you know, this big setting and, and, uh, you know, requires a GM to, to impart it and to envision it and make it a real thing that players can interact with and stuff. Like, do you think designing just a board game or a sort of skirmish war game, like a Warhammer 40,000 sort of thing, like on a smaller scale, do you think there's anything that like, helps with that or do you just come so purely from the rpg background that you're in the hobby you're playing you know what you like you know what you don't like use that as your sort of basis to start with anything like that uh, i mean i i am utterly immersed <laughs> in role playing but uh like like i said i got my start with fighting fantasy books so you could i i suspect sort of dip your toe in the water by writing interactive stories, interactive fiction, um, that sort of thing. Skirmish games, yeah. Uh, you could you could write settings and, and things for that as sort of practice. I know um, I've heard people if, say that, you know, you know, obviously most people, designing a, a role-playing game, especially if you're just putting out a PDF, is infinitely easier than producing a video game with programmers and artists and stuff, but there is a certain... A uh, weird phenomenon that's happening where indie video game designers are either flunking out of video game industry or getting fed up with it, even if they've had some success, and moving into RPGs and taking all of their video game design experience, coming in and seeing and talking about role-playing games in a completely different way than traditional role-playing games, especially OSR people are. There's a there's a clash that's happening there. I don't know how public it is but there is a clash that's happening between people who come from a video game background and they're saying well role-playing games i can do this uh, i already have all these skills and then the <laughs> osr people having this completely inverted view of it almost that you don't get to tell us how to role play you know we every gm at their table is the king that decides everything the author is dead once the game is released all these and they're thinking like well i can just do patch notes you know the game is updated now you have to play differently like <laughs> it's such a different <laughs> reality yeah um i think they're fooling themselves if they, that's <laughs> that's how it works um but at the same time you know you can release updated rules you don't have to wait for a whole new edition mm. and i think that's something that people could embrace it's just that the the player groups aren't necessarily going to do what you tell them <laughs> so it's not like it's not like patch notes you can't force a patch to a game um people are going to carry on regardless and if you think you can go directly from computer gaming to to role playing i think you're in for some 
in for some hard knocks because it is a very different, a very different thing. Um, if you try and tell a railroady story in the same way that you would in a, in a computer game, in a role playing game, the players are just going to end up frustrated and they're going to buck against it and try and get off those rails as, as quickly as possible. I, I haven't seen that so much. I have seen computer game designers move into board games, which, where I think that their, their approach, their mentality, their skills are more applicable to board games where the mechanics have much more primacy. Um, whereas role playing games are necessarily loose and, and fuzzy and have to be open and you can't really dictate to the players. Yeah, it's, so. it's a very, uh, interesting thing to hear somebody with a, a game industry, video game industry background come in and solve, quote unquote, solve problems that, um, you know, role playing games have never dealt with properly and have never had, for example, I'm thinking of somebody in particular right now who's going to know exactly what I'm referring to, <laughs> um, you know, solving the stealth sneaking problem in role playing games that it's always been this awkward, situation where somebody's splitting off from the group or how does stealth check work with a bunch of people at once and it's just they see the awkwardness of the role-playing situation at the table and how it's adjudicated in a different way as a video game designer where they're trying to restructure things and are much more willing to impose a structure on the whole situation and all this kind of stuff and I find that stuff like deeply fascinating. I love I love hearing about it. I'm not picking sides. I I want everybody <laughs> to put out their crazy ideas and see where it, where it plays out. But um, yeah, yes, stealth is one of those interesting technical problems that a lot of people spend a lot of time noodling about. It's um, yeah, it's one of one of the, grappling is the other big one. Mm. I think every, everyone has, everyone has a point of view on grappling <laughs> in games and how it should be handled. And, uh, um, well, yeah. And then the question is, is it fair to burden the GM with having to come up with the logic of how sneaking works if it's a rules light system where there's no, you know, no correct yeah. answer for doing it? And it's a lot of the, a lot of these people are trying to create rules and structure for this are trying to just be considerate of GMs who are already overworked or, trying to think of the plot and stuff and, and where but then are. if you if you make a really explicit system it becomes maladaptive in certain situations so you, you there's no way you can cover every possible situation that a stealth check might occur in a, in a role-playing game in the way that you could in a computer game so you might have a very elegant solution for one situation but you're not it's not going to work in another situation so the gm's going to end up still having to improvise but there's gonna you you'll have then created an expectation that stealth has to work this particular way, and also there's a really big drive that's been ongoing for some time for having a, a unified mechanic so that everything works basically the same way in a game. So there's le there's less to learn, and you can you can get on and play quickly. Whereas if you have all these specialized subsystems for grappling and stealth and whatever else, that adds complication and learning time and puts more people off and. Yeah, yeah the, this is this is what I mean by by holistic. You've always got to consider the impact on the whole. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think I think what these people are arguing, and I'm, I'm I would I love to argue for them by proxy against you, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> because obviously you have such such good insight. Um, and maybe you can maybe you can set them straight on something. I don't know, but the the argument that 
much like you were saying earlier of, um, you know, putting material in the story and in the characters and monsters or whatever that is somewhat challenging, that is almost educational in its in its material, in its presentation, you could design systems that the lack of imagination, if you, if you are, for example, an expert on grappling and you put in a system, you did a bunch of research on it, or you took wrestling courses in school or whatever, um, you know, if you put that in as a subsystem that suddenly has much more realistic rules, now you're teaching people, how they should be running this. And I don't know if you can achieve that with taking your hands off of the controls and saying, you figure it out, you know, and if somebody has this ridiculous, unrealistic notion of how it works, now everybody at the table suffers from this one perspective that a system could have stepped in and, and actually made official and structured it. I mean, obviously bloat is a major concern, but, don't you think there is a educational value to researching something if you know some if you know how something works put it in there. yeah and there is value i mean if if i was going to do something like that i would say okay i'm an expert on this subject i'm going to put out a supplement for some open system like like D&D on that and mm. that would be it then people could pick it up if they were interested and they wanted to incorporate it and so on. there's an aspect missing there though um, which is genre emulation. So if you're approaching wrestling, an Olympic wrestling or a school wrestling team perspective, you know, and you, you're into your, into your Greek or your Turkish wrestling or whatever, you're trying to represent a realistic version of that, that's going to end up looking very different to if you're trying to emulate WWE. <laughs> right. And, and these are, these are both valid approaches to, to grappling. But through very different lenses. Well, one's a realistic lens, one's a genre emulation lens. If you tried to run a WWE game using realistic grappling rules, it it wouldn't work. Yeah, it yeah just it, to you UFC, wouldn't get that you know, result. Having people laying on the ground for ninety percent of the match, you know, that's that's much more realistic. Yeah, I have um, part of my design philosophy and my writing is uh, what I aim for is not realism but plausibility. So. Does it pass the smell test for, for most people? Um, and, and can knowledgeable people live with it? Is, is, is kind of the test. They don't have to like it. It violates. You're not their trying knowledge. to correct misconceptions, uh, with, with your system. No, not, not, not so much. You want to I'm work just aiming... with people on sort of getting them in and letting them tell their stories as easily as possible without. Yeah. Without counterintuitive and, logic in there, yeah, and without being too realistic, because too much realism, you know, stopping to work out all kinds of fiddly mechanics and so on, takes you out of the game, takes you out of the moment, takes you out of in inhabiting the character. Um, now, weirdly, that's also the issue I have with a lot of story games. Well, I was just going to um, say that seems hypocritical in some ways. I mean, you have you have a deep emphasis on just inhabiting the character and respecting the the logic of the character even if it leads to horrific situations and role playing that you know but your emphasis is on the on the choices and on the world interaction and not on the the mechanical side or how does that play out uh yeah but also um, so i'll explain what i mean by 
I also get this disconnect from from so-called story games, right? For me, the goal of role-playing is to inhabit the character, make choices as the character, um, to suspend your disbelief and to get that sense of immersion where you, you are the character making the decisions that the character would make in the situation. Right. And too much fiddly mechanics and so on knocks you out of inhabiting the character and it brings it forward in your awareness that this is a, this is a game right with with dice and numbers and adding and all the rest so that can have a negative effect on immersion but on the other side there are some story games that can knock you out of emotion as well so they're not necessarily about inhabiting the character playing the character living in the character's world making the character's decisions but some of them operate on a meta level where it's about the stories, your kind of group narrating stories for these characters mm. rather than playing the character. I don't know if that's clear enough. <laughs> I hope it. I, I know I've struggled with that for myself because I came in uh, totally clueless uh, and not having a, a rich background and being able to find a lot of role-playing groups to play with, but I was still fascinated by it, so I did whatever research I could and dipped my toes in and... One of the things I had to learn the hard way was that the idea of of collaborative storytelling to me completely fell apart um, once I really grappled with and understood what it was that interested me. And in I'm not saying other people can't make – I've even heard people on this podcast say that they don't think you should think of role-playing games as games. They should be storytelling engines or – Whatever you want to call them, just don't call them games because that has too many implications around a um, challenge. It's just challenge-driven or it's just about whatever. I'm sure you understand all the implications of yeah, that. But yeah. the the thing that, that, struck out, that stuck out to me was that it was about inhabiting the character, but it's all about the hypothetical of what you would do and playing out the situation accordingly so that the situation is what takes precedent, not the genre trope of what would happen in such a situation. So you're you're advocating for your character's um, well-being or goals or whatever in the situation, regardless of whether it fits the stereotype of the hero's, you know, triumph or whatever it is it might be this sort of gritty um awkward you know middle state that that doesn't satisfy a given genre trope and that's where i wonder you know that's where that's where for me a system steps in and says how does swimming work in reality if you're swimming in armor is that you know a viable thing you know in a in a genre Maybe that's nothing. Maybe you just swim all day and aren't in heavy armor, and that's fine. But on the other hand, you know, should, shouldn't your character care about this? And the mechanics have to step in and say, yes, you do have to care about it. And this, and it might not fit a genre that you like, but you have to figure out what your character would do. And it's, I don't know. For me, I get a little bit squeamish around genre emulation and collaborative storytelling i certainly don't tell other people how whether they should avoid that but um i see problems there that 
I don't, I don't want to get into, and I don't consider it story creation. I consider it to be you're negotiating a hypothetical situation from a certain perspective and, you know, you use the tools you have and you deal with the systems that exist and you're sort of stuck in the reality of that. You don't get to have a meta currency that gives you plot armor or something like that. And yeah, though, of course, some games do explicitly have, have that sort of thing well, yeah. Yeah, where you can trade in a token to introduce an element or, you know, alter the story in some way. Um, as long as, as long as the genre of the game and, and the rules are well known enough, I don't think you'll run into that too much because your character's behavior will be modified by, um, by how you perceive the rules to operate. So if you know that the rules don't penalize you for swimming in armor, you'll, you'll dive right in. If you, um, if you know that they will, you'll, you'll strip off and you'll be careful. So this is how, this is what I mean about rules reinforcing the sort of the, the genre and this and the setting and, mm-hmm. and vice versa they need ideally they need to be in concert and that's and it's usually yeah it's usually quite obvious where they jar against each other right and, and that's also where one one rule can have a reverberating you know uh, ripple effect across a lot of decisions that players make yeah, um, that's also where house rules tend to happen because the table will go, "That's stupid. He shouldn't have died." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and then the the GM might modify what they're, what they're talking about. Though that brings up something else. Um, there was that incident on Critical Role where a character died, and then that was retconned the following episode slash session, and that really uh, created a a controversy because there are the people that view any role playing game as a as a story game and you must keep your players completely happy no matter what and they should never face defeat or whatever else and then the other side of people goes yeah total party kills who cares you know this is a consequence of the game you you screw up sometimes so there was a real kind of debate around that i i think i fall somewhere in the middle as per as per usual on these things yeah i i don't know which example that is but i did see some clip of uh you know a character making one decision that to be fair, they were warned pretty explicitly, you know, this is a bad idea. They thought it was going to be cool. It turned out killing them. This was on critical role. And, and I don't know if that was what got retconned or not, but, um, yeah, the, so I, I do, you know, this is normally what I, I talk to people about all the time, not their rich backstory since they don't have one. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but you know, do you, do you, intend to sort of warn people about these choices as designers of, you know, the consequences of making these decisions? Because certainly there's a lot of people who make them almost unconsciously, just assuming that this has to be how it is. They don't consider the alternative. Do you want to open up people's eyes to how intricate it all is? or Or is that beyond the scope of the series that you want to do on game design? Um, I mean, it will come into my sort of philosophy that I want to impart to people that, you know, you need to consider how the whole is impacted by small changes that you make, whether it's to the, to the rules or, just maybe, or anything else. Maybe examples of, yeah, where it, uh, there's a disconnect between a mechanic and, and the holistic view versus, yeah, I'll, I'll certainly give give some examples. Um, 
there's certain aspects of play that I've been really thinking about a lot lately. Um, I'll get to that, get to those in a sec, but I don't, uh, one thing I want to impart is that I do not think it is the role of the game designer to dictate to anybody how they play the game or necessarily to warn them. I mean, in some games it's necessary. The current gaming culture is so against failure and um, against killing off characters that if this is kind of centrally important to your game, I think you have to be explicit about it and the players have to be forewarned that your characters will die in this almost certainly i yeah i i took some time in actual fucking monsters to to make this explicit Mm. because the gaming culture has changed to that extent that i felt it was important that people sort of prepare themselves for the fact that you know this is a game about your characters getting into trouble and eventually that trouble getting to be too much for them and then dying in a spectacular fashion. Yeah, yeah. So that's how you should go into the game thinking, right, my character's going to die. I've got an idea for a new character. I'm, if I go out, I'm going to go out in as, in as cool, cool way as possible. That, that's how you should approach it. So that's. So, but that the, is, that, that, that's that is you telling aspect. people how to play in. in yeah, play. that's, that's an exception. Um, it's just I felt that was so key to this particular game that that's what I wanted to do. Um, I think in horror games, it's it's quite important to establish that sort of you will fail probably uh, sort of expectation. I can tell you from my own perspective, it'd be it'd be a great value if you would try to uh, draw a line of where the line is between being sort of overbearing, because I, by my nature, am absolutely a control freak who would love to tell players how to do everything. I would love to have a separate essay on just how to, you know, role play certain things. I'm very much would love to be a hands on, you know, telling you what the correct way to role play is my system. But from pragmatism, from experience, from just knowing how players act and stuff, I'm learning to appreciate the more OSR um, mentality and just sort of letting people Trying to have more of a, the author doesn't have a say after it's released and letting go of that. Yeah. That no. I think you can, you, you can create expectations for one people, but I don't think you can, can or should try to control how they do things. I would love to see if you created like an example of doing it right versus doing it wrong. Cause I'm sure that with your breadth of knowledge and experience in doing different systems of, cause I know I've read some, I've read a bunch of different systems and, Sometimes it, you do sort of it hits you that this is probably the the right attitude to have towards what you can reasonably tell players versus this book is is clearly stepping into like um you should and shouldn't do this I don't know it's it's hard to explain but there's a certain level of designer um interference or designer pushing you in a certain direction and i would be very curious where you would draw that line of maybe you have some great examples that that you could throw in there i've got an example i'm working on at the moment um across many different pieces of work that i'm doing it's trying to find a better approach to fear 
terror and and madness. Ah, right. Because uh, these are all highly integral to horror or Lovecraftian or yeah, a whole, a whole bunch of different different games and settings. Sure. But the the downside of it is that whenever your character gets terrified or driven mad or whatever, it necessarily means that you lose agency over your character, how they react, what the, what they do. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Was... And that that feels like too much interference a lot of the time. It makes the player frustrated and and helpless. But you don't want to do away with the consequence. Because you can't um, really trust the player to go against their own interests either. Yeah. So what and I'm, I'm still working this through, trying to try to figure out the the other thing is also um realism. When you have mental illness, as as I do, it tends to fracture along lines that already exist in your personality. It's not lol so random. You know, if um yeah, if yeah. I if I encountered a, a shog off tomorrow, I would probably, you know, become incredibly anxious, refuse to go outside, sink into a deep depression, and that would be how it would affect me, whereas someone else might enter a weird manic phase and, you know, turn their house into a fortress or, or something else. It, it wouldn't be random. I wouldn't randomly become afraid of rabbits or, or something, which is the way, which is the approach a lot of systems seem to take. It's just, just ah, random. I see, I see, so, I see. So what I would suggest is that, like I say, I'm still, I'm still working this out. So it's, it's an ongoing project. But what I would suggest is that you would give the player choices or you would um, talk with the player and say, oh, okay, your character has lost all their sanity points. They're going to develop some kind of permanent derangement. I was thinking X, Y, or Z. How do you think they would go mad in this situation? So if they encountered the Shoggoth, maybe they gain a, a phobia of slimes and, and oozes and, you know, anything glutinous, perhaps. Yeah, that might be something we could do. Or, you know, to, to turn it away from a sort of random table into an, an interaction and a player choice to retain that player agency. Yeah, and that's kind and, of interesting because it, it would reinvest the character in the identity as opposed to stripping them of identity by by forcing them to suddenly have this property that they didn't relate to. Yeah, some random element that maybe doesn't fit their, fit their character or, or whatever. And when it comes to fear, I mean, there are different ways that people react to being terrified. Some people blindly attack whatever it is that's scared them. Some people flee for their lives. Some people curl up and go catatonic. So giving the, giving the players a choice of how their character reacts to a, a particular fear rather than just you know, imposing a saving throw and a, a result for the same reason. That's a bit more complicated because a lot of people are just going to say, well, I blindly attack the source of my fear. Mm. So that's a little bit more complicated. But just retaining player agency or an element of player agency where it would normally be stripped away from them yeah. two is, things, is something I'm exploring. Two things come to mind when you mention that is one is, I don't know if you played the classic XCOM game the the original but uh, when your character lost morale to a certain degree and you you lost all of your character's morale then they would have a random effect that's the first thing that came in mind and it was i believe it, the, the the options were you drop your weapon and everything you're holding and you lose all of your action points you just freeze and paralyze and you drop your stuff 
or you just randomly start shooting in random directions. I, there, there was a different one. There was another one that made you flee towards the nearest edge of the right edge of the tiles. I think, yeah, yeah, and that, yeah, that would be a random one. But to me, I always thought those just sounded like great. You know, some some real thought was put into it, and considering it was a very you know simplistic uh, video game without the the luxury of role playing, you know, being able to have infinite possibilities and subtle nuances and things. I thought that was a good selection in that game, but certainly in a role-playing game, tabletop role-playing game, where you have all the creativity of the table at your disposal, um, just having a random table does seem to be pretty, uh, even even from not aside from the realism aspect and the respect to people who have mental illness, the just the lack of making use of the potential there, the creative potential and the the role-playing potential. And that's a good example of how computer games approach is good for computer games, but not necessarily in the context of a a role-playing game. And that might be something that a computer game designer might, might miss. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree with that. That's, that's for sure. And uh, the other thing I was thinking of uh, just vaguely came to mind was the burning wheel um, model, which, if I remember correctly, I read it a long time ago, was uh, that your characters have sort of flaws inherently in them at creation that you can predict, and along the way they sort of trend towards this negative state that um, I think the classic example is that dwarves as a race, as a race, once they get a certain amount of stress or fatigue or whatever, they... Eventually, they just start hoarding gold, and they just want to go hide in the mountains and hoard gold all the time. And so it's a – your character actually basically becomes invalid, and you have to stop role-playing as them. It's a defeat state. It's a fail state in a way. Or in, in a different sense, you could see it as a completion state, that the that you're – they've achieved the the end state of the character. It's not necessarily a failure, but – um, and that is a way of reinforcing the lore of the world that – this is yeah. what dwarves do, and this is why you will find dwarves ho- hoarding gold in mountains is because they have been through some shit, and this is what comforts them. And that was an interesting yeah. way of dealing with that. Yeah, that's um, that's a very sort of similar way of doing it. It's just front-loading what to expect if your character loses loses their shit. <laughs> so it's coming at it the other direction, mm, but that's right. just, just as valid. And it, it creates an expectation and an acceptance and makes it in part character choice when you choose your race or, You're or whatever else. You're actually looking forward to it. You're, it's a, something to anticipate as opposed to a crisis point at the table that what do we do now? Why is my character suddenly like this? And it has psychologically, it has a lot of negativity when you're surprised by something that, changes your character as opposed to knowing that your character will change or could change and kind of already building up how you will handle that once it happens and integrating it into your plan for your character and all sorts of stuff. Yeah. I mean, I always found the humanity system in Vampire the Masquerade really grating because it was a very explicitly judeo-christian <laughs> morality set that they regarded as as humanity and i'm not familiar okay. with it. if you want to, if you want to rant about it i would love so to you, you you had a humanity level and basically at, at, at humanity 10 you you had to be an absolute saint 
and then as you as you did bad things your your humanity would decrease but it was all yeah like i say sort of judeo-christian ethics and it was um I guess it made sense from a kind of mystical background perspective, but it always, it always grated me because there are, like, like if you steal food for your family, that, that's a humanitarian action. You know, you're placing yourself at risk for the benefit of others. To me, that's something humane. That's, that's quintessentially human. Semi-heroic, some would say. To do that. Yeah, it, it, exactly. And, um, yeah, there's all kinds of exceptions like that. Like, is a, is a soldier who goes to war for a good cause necessarily an inhuman monster because they end up killing in the service of that cause? You know, our society mostly doesn't think so. Um, there are exceptions, of course. So, and so what effect does it have on their sense of their humanity? You can argue about that with PTSD and so on, but at least th- there's a question there. It's, it's not black and white. So I was really interested later on when they brought in, um, parts of parts of knowledge and uh, yeah, different different moral systems hmm. that felt to me like something that was kind of fumbling along the way and um then when i introduced a against my own best advice a, a humanity system for actual fucking monster it really has not much influence on play other than reminding you that your the, your human moral system, once you've become a monster, is gradually being eroded and you're, you're rationalizing and accepting things. So, the way it works is you might have a, have a phrase like, I will not kill. And then, during the course of the game, maybe you're forced into a position of killing someone in self-defense. So then you would have to rationalize and sort of loosen that. So I will not kill except in self-defense. Yeah, yeah. Or, you know, or uh, uh, then again, that might get eroded later on. So you might, unless you can just kind of, it's just a way of tracing how your character's morality might change over, over time. Well, that's, so, yeah. that's, yeah, go on. that's definitely, uh, from, from the fear, you know, you're, you're reinforcing the theme very heavily by putting something in there like that, that, presuming that players come in with the desire to, to, you know, to tell this kind of story that you're trying to tell, um, it won't get in the way. If you put it in a system where humanity doesn't seem to be a critical, crucial part of your identity, it would be kind of a bizarre, tacked-on thing. And for Vampire, I can totally see why they would think that that's the correct way to handle it. Uh, I'm wondering on more of a structural level for that, it sounds like you're okay with or advocating for character properties that are official and are recorded in and are non-negotiable. You can't pretend like your character is not X, that they are not, you know, this level of human, but they don't have a direct mechanical slotting in with a subsystem. And I'm wondering because I've been dealing with this myself, as I love the idea of simulating a lot of interesting details and keeping track of information, but I know how much that paperwork bothers people and feeling restricted by it bothers people. But assuming that people are willing to play out the situation according to what is factually established but not mechanically reinforced, 
something as simple as, for example, in my in my system, I'm really looking at and considering putting in a system of tracking how filthy and dirty your characters are by tracking, like, just basically on a scale of 1 to 10 or whatever it would be, you just barely, you know, slogged through mud. You just barely gutted a, a monster or whatever, and now you're covered in blood. You're, all these things that happen that people forget, suddenly they stroll into a town you know, you know, you know, 50 feet away and they're having pleasant conversations with people and it makes no sense that they are not covered with viscera and, and <laughs> mud and they'd be horrific sights to see. Um, what do you think about something like just having a tracker for things and space to record things and sort of a requirement or a suggestion certainly to record facts, respect those facts, but respect them in the role-playing capacity instead of trying to always mechanically reinforce it um it's it's a good compromise solution i don't know that it needs to be formalized um because that's an endless rabbit hole you can end up going down okay so we're going to track how filthy you are we should also track how hungry you are uh yeah we should also track how tired you are when was the last time you went to the toilet you know it, it can it can get out of hand so I might offer something like that as a, as advice to a GM to make a note of the of the kind of physical state that the characters are in, mm. rather than necessarily formalizing it. With these humanity books said, yeah, th this game is explicitly not about that in the way that a lot of other games have been um, in the past. So that's why there's no rules for that. You can you can do whatever you like and continue to function as a as a being. But then lots of people were asking for it. About my approach to it, so that's why I, I added those those optional rules and ah, that's various optional your, bits around it. Against your own advice, that's why you did. Yeah, yeah. Um, because it, explicitly, the the game as written is not about that. But people wanted <laughs> the opportunity to make it about who am I to argue? Hmm. So uh, yeah, I gave I gave them my option as a, as a way of doing that, uh, just as a way of kind of marking. Marking the, the, the changing morality that your, that your character might have. I mean, uh, there's a, there is a missed opportunity here that I'm sure will happen at some point where a lot more detail and so on can be tracked without it interfering with the players so much and their experience of the game. If everyone had their character sheet on an app, on their phone, right? Yep. Like you could, you could, you could beam status updates. So, oh, okay, plus one level of filth to him. Yeah. <laughs> if yeah, it, and then and then it would automatically figure that into influence. Yeah, that's that that would be a way of dealing with it without screwing around with the with the player's experience of the game and and putting a lot of bookkeeping and so on into them. I'm surprised there hasn't been more of this. There's been a few efforts. I think faith. A game that uses an app. Uh, it's been more in board games and things. I guess there's just not enough money in in role playing games to really explore this as an option. Even D and D Beyond and so on doesn't really doesn't really have these these tools and opportunities. There's certainly um, a clash of just um, you know there's there's tons of people who play role playing games online, but in the traditionalist sense, there is just a clash of you know, please put your phones away. Please don't be distracted. Please, you know, be just focused on the pen and paper and the and the books and the 
there's a tradition to it and a ritual to it that is, in a sense, you know, the sacred thing. You don't want to pollute with an app in the middle of it. Yeah. And then there's another part, which is if you're already using whatever you're using, a phone or something, you know, what are the odds that you're going to be tempted to just check your messages right away? You have notifications. You have all these things. Yeah. Most of most of my players use tablets or, or laptops for their character sheets. I use I use one, and when there's a, ours is a big group, so it's not um, it's not a typical situation. So there are quite and it, we play all day, so there's often lulls where you know one or two characters are going off doing something, and the rest of us have nothing to do particularly. And so it's not necessarily a problem that we can hmm. check our social media and, and and so on. But for smaller groups, I think you do want. That attention. And I think the the ritual, the the getting together, the the food, the meeting face to face, those kind of things, they're important aspects of role playing, along with the the sheer level of freedom that you get. And these are the things we should focus on rather than trying to compete with online games or whatever else. I mean, we saw Fourth Edition didn't exactly light the world on fire <laughs> when it came to D and D, and that was set up uh, to try and compete with MMOs and so on. Yeah, I've um, said it before. Maybe... The fourth edition, I love as a designer. I, I watched it and I said, finally, Dungeons & Dragons has their shit together, and they're appealing to me as somebody who likes video games and somebody who likes the tactile, you know, uh, Final Fantasy tactics. I love, you know, XCOM. I love these games where I feel like I'm, I'm playing around with it and stuff, and... And uh, obviously, I was not playing Dungeons and Dragons before that, and so I I saw from a distance the clash of Fourth Edition come in and then try to compromise that and, and sort of uh, become more of I don't know how would you describe I guess you were describing but how would you describe the the clash that happened there? Um, I I have a kind of weird relationship with Fourth Edition. Um, when it was in playtesting and so on, I, I wrote an adventure for it that was actually published in Dragon when it was still around. I think it was Dragon. Um, the adventure was called Cross City Race because, uh, one of the things I found really fascinating about fourth edition, one of the things I thought was really good was the idea of the extended challenge. So that whole adventure was basically one big extended challenge um, to, to get from one end of the city to the other. So that was one thing I thought they did really well. But we always played theatre of the mind. We never really played with miniatures. Right. We never really played on a board. So for these reliance on a board and, uh, you know, tactics and maneuverability and, and so on, everything being basically related back to that grid was massively off-putting. We did end up running a game of it without using a board, um, and I created a, a tactical pool rule to handle that. So where you would have got a maneuvering advantage, you got some points that went into a pool that you could then spend to boost your attack or your, nice. or your damage or whatever. So that was our, our way of dealing with it. I was glad they were trying to innovate. I was glad they were trying to compete with things that had been poaching players for a long time. I thought it was bold, almost as bold as the the open design revolution with third edition. But I think they were, I don't think you can compete. Maybe if they'd had their digital rules and um, virtual tabletop thing wow. done, 
though that never came out in the end. If they'd had that ready for fourth edition, maybe it would have been more of a success. Um, maybe they could have more tapped into that market, but because that never came to fruition, I think that's a big part of why it failed. And it also really annoyed, disrupted, pissed off a lot of their existing audience from previous editions who th- you, this just wasn't Dungeons and Dragons to them. Um, they broke and their so they own react- tradition. They broke their own ritual of, yeah. of what the experience was. And, and that's why there was so much so much blowback and pushback. And that's why 5th edition is almost an old school game in and of it. It's very stripped back. Yeah, it's, that's uh, true. I think a lot of people you know, agree with that. And that's been a been a huge success. So, um, yeah, while it's while it's good to try and challenge and, and change things, sometimes if it ain't broke, don't fix it. I know I can say from the communities that I'm familiar with that it feels to me like the new uh, indie, you know, thing that that was happening for years. Um, this sort of the collaborative storytelling thing and meta currency for for so many things is fading, and the OSR movement is is going strong, but. There's there's something else that's happening which is neither that I that I'm the most interested in, which is a sort of like I said, it's kind of video game designers coming in and trying to bring their knowledge to it. Um you know, respecting it's not all as predictable as you would think. There's a lot of people who mm-hmm. like video games and design video games and have been role playing for a long time. So they know where what would be a violation or not, but in between all of that is this sort of is the ritual is the tabletop experience is the the question of you know are we are we really simulating a a, a very interesting world where we have total freedom or are we just trying to hit the high points and the low points of a of a riveting tale and that's one of the reasons why I just keep I keep doing the podcast and keep talking to more people of totally different approaches, totally different philosophies and very hard line stances on a lot of cases. And, um, I'm always curious where people end up on that. And so I'm certainly very interested in what you end up saying in the, in the YouTube series. I'm going to be, I'm going to have to subscribe to that. And I recommend other people do, um, It'd be a hell of a yeah. hell of a low price to be able to get some good insight. <laughs> if you do subscribe as well, you'll be able to give me feedback or ask specific questions or things you want me to cover. So, yeah, it's, it'll be a participatory thing. It won't just be me lecturing you, but that will be a big part of it. Oh man, that reminds me. I can't. The guy who created the the gameism, simulationism, narrativism. Um. Yes, Professor Batdong. Um. Ron, uh, he he has his own consulting, sort of public consulting advice. Yeah. Series. Anyway, we were, we were talking about um, yeah, you know, fe- feeling like a fake in- imposter syndrome. Yeah, sure, yeah. I, I still don't feel that I'm necessarily in the right place to advise people, but I think I've I've done enough things. 
right and enough things wrong that I think people can at least learn from me as a cautionary example. So, uh, GNS theory, Ron Edwards, that's it. That's, yep, yep, yep. So he yeah. has his own, um, his own thing. I, I saw some of it and I could not, I honestly, not to insult him, I don't know the guy, but, uh, <laughs> I could not get a single valuable piece of information or insight out of the entire thing. I watched for, for like an hour and, um, you know, uh, GNS, GNS theory, I think it is useful as a tool when you're designing a game for figuring out what your goals are. So, yeah, where do you want to place your, your emphasis? Do you want to place it more on the mechanics and um, the character building, sort of that side of things? So that would be more the game. Do you want to focus more on the storytelling side? So do you want to introduce genre emulation or specific story mechanics to allow people to take narrative control, that sort of thing, then that's narrativism. Uh, then there's simulationism, so, you know, how realistic do you want it to be? Do you want it to model reality? Um, the genre emulation can bleed over into that as well. I think he was missing an aspect, which is toy. And that doesn't come up so much in role-playing games necessarily, but GNS can be applied to to other things. If you consider Minecraft, for example, or Lego bricks, they're a toy that you can do whatever you want with. They're not necessarily trying to simulate something or tell a story or necessarily be a game with a win condition. It's just something you can, you can play with, you can put together, take apart. You project those things onto the, onto the yeah. thing. Yeah. So I think he, I think he was missing, missing an aspect there, but it is much less common in, in tabletop games, though some of them, um, have really kind of intricate session zeros work yeah. together to put together a world before you make your characters. And that's probably about as close as we get to that. That's interesting. But, um, for, for what it's worth, I will say I, from what I was seeing, which was more recent than his GNS discussions, he completely abandoned GNS as, as the model that he's talking about. And it went into something like, um, there's some other key word that he kept repeating that was a replacement for GNS, and it was uh, it was much more nuanced, much more complicated, and so just hard to follow what what it was. But um, I certainly wanted to get a bunch of RPG design advice when I started listening to it, and um, I wish I could remember what it was, but it's been a while now. But <laughs> he, he abandoned it too, and he, you know, it seemed to me like his part-time job was uh, reminding people that he doesn't promote GNS anymore, and just being angry at at these people <laughs> who uh, who are trying to pr impose it on him and criticizing him. And he's like, "I'm not. That's not what we're talking about anymore." And it's like, "Oh man, that's a that's a hell of a position to be in." Uh, I I still think it has some utility sort of very early stages of game design when you're just asking yourself, okay, what kind of game am I, am I trying to create? Where do I want to, to emphasize things? Mm -hmm. And then how, how am I going to do that? I look forward so, to your, your, uh, three letter abbreviation of <laughs> have your own, your own <laughs> essay philosophy on all of encompass, all of role playing, make sure you cover all the bases. Um, <laughs> it really, you like to be holistic, you know, just, yeah, well, there you go. Holistic game design. There was a company called Holistic, so maybe I won't be allowed to use that. <laughs> yeah.
Yeah. No, I'm I'm seriously looking forward to it, and I definitely hope people tune into it, and that uh, you get you know motivated by by whoever tunes yeah. in. Well, I I am I am terrible at self marketing, so there's there's some extra advice to your listeners. Get to be good at at self marketing, and don't be embarrassed by it. Mm. So I'm gonna have to try and force myself to uh to pimp this this stuff out to people. <laughs> Well, I will be there. Uh, thank you very much for coming on the podcast and talking with me. Anytime. If you want to do a follow-up anytime, uh, yeah, yeah, just ask. Yeah, definitely. I think, um, you know, considering how much you work on, there's um, definitely going to be updates, and maybe there will be some giant controversy that <laughs> we can uh, visit as well <laughs> if there's something to talk about there. Uh, there. There usually is. All right, well. I think that'll be it then, and uh, thanks for coming by. And I'll see you, I'll see you around on Mines. Is there any? What were the places you would promote people to go to first if they wanted to check out more of your stuff? Um, buying stuff direct from me is the best way to do it. You can do that at post-mort.com. You'll find links off there for various merchandise, uh, blogs, and so on that I run. My main YouTube channel is Postmortem Video. Um, I don't just talk about games there, but I prefer to talk about games there, and I'm happy to do videos on what anyone wants. Um, I was interested in hearing me waffle on about. Um, Patreon is a Grimachu, like Pikachu, but with a Grim at the start. Uh, Subscribestar is Grim-Jim. Um, current Twitter is Grimasaur, until that gets banned. And uh, Mines, yeah, my, I would really minds to people as a new more open social platform i think a lot of the people that have been chased off tumblr will find minds useful um it, yeah it's it's getting to be a good place i think yeah I, I i i like it so far i like the back end they have i know they're having some technical issues but um i like the free speech attitude they have and it's not I like that it's not a monoculture there. There is a diversity of different groups there that completely disagree, and and that's kind of where I thrive. I love being in places where where nobody actually agrees, but you know you can kind they of get can, along. They can have the argument, yeah, yeah, and you don't have to have the argument either. You can just watch it, or you can you can do your own thing. And I, I like the RPG community there. That um, I'm trying to get more people to sort of put themselves out there as well, and hoping to get more interviews from people there. And, and that's why one of the, another reason why I appreciate so much coming on and talking with me there. And, uh, and I'll definitely try to follow up yet. So thank you. And, cool. and uh, I'll see you back there. Yeah.